Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? What it do, you beautiful people? This is Clint Russell, and you are listening to Liberty Lockdown. Once again, I am off to Washington State for the LP convention this Saturday. If you guys are in Washington, please come out and say hi. It's going to be fun. Um, and then the following week, I'll be in Colorado. Then after that, I will be in Austin, end of April, and then uh, Tennessee, also mid-April, and then Oakland, California in may so yeah there's a lot lot to come check me out um it's great to meet you guys uh because i'm going to be taking a very early morning flight i wanted to get an episode out to you guys and this is a a double dipper and i think you'll be interested to hear what it is so first up i have a impromptu debate that um i just had a bunch of like listeners of mine that tagged me in this thread and said you know this leftist wants to debate about uh child transitioning and uh basically like critical theory when it comes to, you know, sexual progressivism and educating children about it and all that stuff. So very interesting one. His name's Carter. He's a, uh, some sort of big time Twitch streamer. I don't know. I don't know him. He didn't know me. Um, I went in there <clears throat> very, very low energy. Um, but I thought that it was a good, good trial run for me. Cause, uh, you know, I've never debated that topic. It's just something that I've, been looking into a lot lately because I'm concerned and I thought it was a good good first go given that you know it seems as if he does this quite often uh it was it was good for me to to test myself out and see where my ideas held he is a marxist and uh or a socialist seemed pretty marxist and uh it it was I I'm just going to let you guys decide I I'll, I'll be really interested to to hear your feedback about this one because it was uh unique to say the least it's very far reaching we go through all sorts of things anarchism and everything else so i think you guys will enjoy that and the second one is it was kind of like presented to me as it was going to be a debate about ukraine um and the war in ukraine and american sport but we seem to agree more than we disagreed so not a very contentious debate but an interesting conversation nonetheless and that is with josh firm of lotus eaters uh so yeah double dip baby you're welcome i couldn't leave you for three days without anything. So this is going to give you plenty to process over the weekend, and I hope you enjoy it. If you do, go to libertylockdown.locals.com, sign up to become a sporting member of the show. I will be doing an AMA over there next week, uh, I think on Tuesday because I fly to Colorado on Wednesday. Life is getting hectic. Um, I'm trying to get everything done when I can, but it's a challenge. So thank you for bearing with me as I adjust to this weird lifestyle that I did not expect to be participating in. And uh, yeah. It, make sure you leave a like and a comment and a subscribe and a share. Send it to your friends. Red pill those MFs. Make them lose their minds. It's fun. Just do it. All right, guys. See you in a few days. Enjoy. So my idea is essentially that in anarcho-capitalism, like we were talking, if I own the water and you travel to the next town, there's going to be someone who did the exact same thing. They were born in that on the water well, and their might makes right. So your options are limited to you know, fight or die. That's not freedom, is it, right? Like, because your choices have been made up for you. That is literally always the choice. And I'm telling you, there's a, there's a solution. I have a solution. Yeah, monopolize the violence in the state. Yes, but the state is run by who? Usually oligarchs, but go no, ahead and there, tell me. I'm, I'm saying in socialism, it'd be the communists, right? The, the, the workers, everybody, democracy. Yeah, it's worked out great.
but but it has right democracy is the most just system right it shares the I'm blame something... of course i don't believe in democracy yeah but why not why what, what's wrong with democracy it's the tyranny of the majority would you rather have tyranny of the minority what if you're in the uh, the majority in that point i would rather have no say over someone else's life and vice versa as long as they're peaceful i don't want to rule over them and vice versa but wait but it's always someone's gonna have a say over your life it's always gonna happen if you have the tyranny of the minority how else do they maintain power they must have a say what you mean by that um in the tyranny of the minority that assumes there's tyranny there's always power in the world right there will always be power that is that is a, a yeah and a, getting it a, as close to the individual is is the ideal formula socialism would be the most because you and i are you and i are workers right like i'm i don't own i don't own businesses i don't own land i'm not a landlord right you and i i mean that's private property that's a different thing but you and i are both workers right essentially we both work in a factory i mean i have just as much power as you and i hold no extra power over you it's the most just system and if a change comes we all vote together to make something a change. That is the most, we share the blame if it's wrong. There is no, like there is no essential unjustness. It's, it's morally righteous, right? There's no evil. I mean, there is evil because people are evil, but you know what I mean on a big scale. Yeah, well, I, I would rather take, <laughs> take it down as close to the individual. If, if you're going to give power, it should okay. be done equitably. You should have the right to self-defense and to whatever munitions necessary to keep Don't your, disagree. your person I'm and a, property safe. But if I'm you're going SRA to go, person. excuse me, SRA, so socialist rifle organi uh, organization is like something I really like. So, right. Yeah. And Marx was big on guns and yep. that's the one thing he and I agree on wholeheartedly. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, you're not going to convince me that, that democracy is, is better than individual rights and and the capacity for self-defense individual democracy, rights all, democracy has yeah. the capacity to strip you of these rights that you and i are, are speaking so highly of i mean how do you how do you prevent how do okay. you prevent the majority from voting away your right to a gun because i understand that if it's being done it's being done for the benefit of the most people because i i'm i'm not special i'm i'm just like you i'm an, i'm a yeah, human being then, then you then you no longer have the capacity to defend yourself so the mob the mob now has matter. the capacity to end your life and you're okay with that okay but it, that doesn't matter Yes, it fucking does. It matters more than anything. But that's not happened, right? We wouldn't be where we are. That's not human nature. We are social creatures. We often try to strive for the, we have the betterment of everyone. We have examples where people have voted their way into a position of dominance and of, into a, a lower course. class that is subjugated. And and be, usually the historical trend line is that they are they remove their capacity for self-defense before it gets really dire. So no, having the majority vote because it's for the best of the of the community, the community and the majority can be wrong. And they right. often are. But why would I trust one person instead of a thousand? I trust myself. I don't trust one person. But over... someone's going to subjugate you, right? That's the whole point. Like the tyranny of the minority is subjugation of like one person, right? The, in the hyper sense, right? Essentially, if I have a bigger gun or more people on my side in my hyper individualistic world, I'm going to control that's, what you do. That's, that's a description of our current paradigm. The state yep. has the biggest gun. And it's able yep, to. I agree, but but us. we don't live anywhere close to. So in in my state, there is no borders. There is no any of that. We all decide on things. We we elect representatives who hold no leverage over anyone. Right. I don't even actually believe in representatives. I believe in direct democracy. I believe representation is purely a facility for like quick small action, but all large action is done by the majority. Right. Because otherwise, you're you're in a state which uh, you could be on the out group. Right. If you believe in a tyranny of the minority, I am. On, I am on the out group. I'm a libertarian that lives in. Yeah. A, well, okay. But I mean, in like in like this, this, this world, right? Yeah, we do live in a neo. I agree. Of course. Like that's where, like, obviously, socialist or communist, 
and anarcho capitalists have a bunch of overlap because of anarchism and the founding of communism being, you know, anarchist and libertarian right. uh, in its roots, the original or socialist, I guess, or classic socialism before Lenin. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, I guess the main, the main problem though, is like, if we lived in your world, there will always just be a person or the, we'll end up right back where we are. Right. Cause I would argue that America was pretty anarcho capitalist in the beginning. Right. It was, I mean, and what happened? Every aspect, yeah. Yeah, but what like, happened is that the you you get additional wealth, and then people unfortunately vote themselves into uh, increasing the size of the government, and then they. But we don't have tyranny. direct democracy. We we have a tyranny in the mi minority in America. Yeah, well, I mean, we vote for representatives that do the same thing that democracy does. I mean, you're you no, think that because taking, direct democracy is different. A representative out of the way is actually going to alleviate the problem. I don't think it would. Okay. Yeah. I I mean that's a that's a fair assessment for sure. I definitely think it's fair. I just obviously like I'm somebody who thinks that. Um, even if what the majority has chosen is, is wrong, we share the blame together to learn together and it's class consciousness. I believe in collective understanding. Um, we all I live don't, in capitalism. I don't believe in collective anything, guilt or understanding or any of that. But, it's, but why not? We all have, you've lived your life. I, I don't have any fucking guilt for slavery because of my no, skin. No, no, I didn't say guilt. I said collective understanding. That doesn't mean guilt. There's no emotion tied to that. Well, understanding is purely that both you're, you you're and saying, I. You're saying that no one is, is, basically wrong in that situation because the majority voted for it i mean that's yes that, well no you you can be but you come to an understanding later that you were wrong right you realize yeah. oh shit and, some, and sometimes and innocent people up, sometimes you end up in a, a gulag or a holocaust because the the majority was wrong You're right and and now what does germany do now they have vast education programs and look to wipe away make amends they tried right and Russia, yeah, with that, Russia, that they couldn't do shit the about the gulags because we went in there and instilled a dictator. That doesn't help the people that died during that period. Of course, but in your situation, more people people still die. We killed Native Americans fucking out the ass. And black people, right? Like, out the ass. We, we genocided the world. We're doing it now, right? America started that. Like, that's the whole point is there will always be a – America's the big guy with the gun right now. And we're melting brown kids in the Middle East, Right. We are. We're, and obviously you're anti-war. I get it. Yeah, I, I understand that. But that will always happen is what I'm saying. There is in anarcho-capitalism, there will always be somebody who overtakes you. There will always be someone yeah. stronger. I'm just not willing to accept that a, a, a state that you know commits genocide is an inevitability that I have to accept. I refuse but to accept that. I do the way around it is to have education, right? Like there's not been anything like that in a long time. All the genocides that that happen currently, there is genocides happening are either facilitated by the United States or happening in countries that are underdeveloped with a lack of education or understanding well, or connectivity. If you want right? to talk about, you know, having a, a collective consciousness, the collective mm -hmm. consciousness I would like to see is one that understands that the, the gravest evil is committed by the state. And if of you, course. if you give a monopoly on violence to that state, then the, you, you want to talk about inevitable conclusions. It's usually one of, you know, subjugation and violence. But the and, idea is you have the most individual liberty as a as a person if you are the state. If all the workers are the state, the majority is the state, you would likely be the state, right? Unless you're a landlord, you would likely be the state, right? And if you are the state, then what who you gonna hold violence over yourself? Of course not. Like that's I do, you understand I, I, that. I do not understand what you're saying. You should read okay. I, I I know this sounds really dumb. Have you read State and Revolution by Lenin? Okay, it's an audiobook. It's super quick. It was right before the revolution in uh, you know, before they became I'll check it out. the Soviet Republic. So it's on a, you can listen to it on Spotify even. It's super short. Okay. But essentially Lenin describes how this would happen. And Lenin goes, uh, as the workers take over, and then the revolution happens. So he didn't give it to finish his book, which is kind of based, right? Like he talked about the revolution and then did it, you know? 
So he talks about the, what happens about the machine of the state and all the revolutions that are heard, the French Revolution. And his whole point is that as the workers become the state, as the state is operated by all the people, the majority, it eventually dissolves itself. Because a communist society is a stateless, classless, moneyless society, right? Utopia. But an anarchist capitalist society is not utopia. It's dystopia because there will always be somebody to, to overdo. In, in communism, there isn't because the effect is the, is the mob, right? It's more so if somebody tries to come and fuck me up, my neighbors are going to have my back. Right. Well, that's the same concept of anarcho-capitalism. No, because in anarcho-capitalism, if my neighbors come to fuck me up, no one's going to care because I have individuality. No, and then he's just going to fucking absurd. kill me. I mean, just because I'm an individualist doesn't mean that I don't have community. Yeah, it's but just how do you have... It's just voluntary. It's not, okay. it's not coerced. But without, if it's voluntary, then what stops you from just holding it over someone's head? It has, there has to be an act of coercion, right? Well, no, it would be morality. I mean, that, that's why I wouldn't hold it over someone's head. But, but you, we have you to need establish the state to tell morality. you not to do that? I'm just saying we have to establish some baseline of morality, right? And there is none. Yeah. Well, I... Mm. There is no baseline morality. If I live in that Amazon jungle and I murder some dude who's been coming into my village for hundreds of years, his village has been invading mine and I murder him, I'm not the same as a murderer in America, right? Like I was defending my village, you know, or if I, I meet him in I the would, jungle and I, recognize I his necklace. That's moral. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand what you mean. But if I did that in America, if I shot a guy on the street because he lives on a block across that historically did something, I'm a murderer. No, but if he came into your property, it'd be, I mean, that's the more, that's the I'm more saying they met in the apt jungle, metaphor. Right? They met in the jungle. I know, but you said he came into his village. So it's like... Okay, or you saw him outside. It doesn't matter. My point is he runs into him and shoots the guy. Okay. They have well, a history I, of doing that. My, my, my point is is that it, there, there are some commonly accepted moral principles that if someone comes into your, your territory, yeah, as you're describing it, it, it for, in American terms, it would usually be your property, yep. that you would have the right to you know, ask him to leave and then take his life if he refused okay i mean that's that's normally how yeah. I, I don't think obviously it's very different than if i go into his house and i kill him then that would be murder but there's so there's no real baseline right like that means that there's different so many different situations Is that i mean that's killing pretty universally can be justified, accepted though right you killed someone right but i mean that's justified right. in that situation but that's yeah. not a, a baseline then formality we can't just say no killing because uh, sure yeah yeah so I just mean, that's what I mean. It's like, there is no baseline. Like it will always. Well, that's why we have the different words for it. It's self-defense versus murder. Yeah, of course. And that has, can only be enacted or enforced with what? Like a, it has to be some apparatus. It doesn't have to be the state, right? But right. It, has it doesn't. To be some, it yeah, has to be have, some apparatus. You could have a, apparatus. A, a, you know, mutually agreed a commune. Upon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a commune. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy how much overlap I always see that there is between the, like, especially theory talk. Um, but yeah, anyways. The gender ideology stuff is mainly what we're going to talk about. I, of course, we're going to agree a bunch. Anarchists, capitalists, obviously always agree a lot with uh, communists. So, yeah, hey, no, I appreciate I mean, the talk. It was a lot of fun. Oh, you got to go now? Uh, no, I can keep talking if you want. Well, I have no. Well, I, I just feel like I, I feel like it, we didn't really get to the to the root of okay, the concerns. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there there is a a real sincere fear amongst. Mm -hmm. The conservatives and i okay. you, you said that i was a conservative because i'm a libertarian i i would disagree with that um assertion but regardless i i feel as if i i'm able to understand their perspective better than mm -hmm. than the left because i believe that the left has deeply imbibed of critical theory and, okay. and intersectionality as we've discussed quite a bit during this hour um okay and what, what... the right the right is in my estimation mm -hmm. correctly concerned that their kids are being 
indoctrinated because I, I believe that public schooling is indoctrination. So anything taught in public schooling yeah. would be classified as indoctrination. But particularly when you talk about subjects that are, uh, I think that children are just not equipped to deal with, yeah. uh, that you can lead them down a very dangerous path. And we're already seeing that, that you have. Uh, and I think we, we also didn't talk about the, uh, the amount of suicides that happen in the trans community, whether they, whether they receive treatment or don't. Um, but it, the, the direct study is transition, not receive treatment. That's different. Gender affirmation and receive treatment are different things, right? So that means, sure. what, yeah. So like the, the study, first but of all, the, it's inconclusive. I, my, my argument is that the, the, in that community, mm -hmm. regardless of what happens in terms of care, there's okay. an elevated suicide rate versus people that aren't in that community. Okay. Correct? Yeah. But, but I guess the question uh, you're, is. You're, you will argue that it's because of, you know, biases and, and mistreatment that they receive because of who they are, correct? I, of course, public action, public recourse. Yes. What's I'm sorry, I don't know what public action means in this regard. Like le trying to legislate them out of existence, stop trying to prevent that, trying to say that they're grooming kids, right? Like these things essentially make their existence very hard. Right. Um, I would argue that it it overlooks what is likely a root cause, which is unfortunately being overlooked in many instances that mm -hmm. many of these people are dealing with mental illness and and because it's yeah. i mean i guess this is a good question do you think that everyone who classifies themselves as trans is mm -hmm. in fact trans yes 100 percent. okay so what about the ones that think that they are and then end up detransitioning they are an anomaly they happen but they're still trans they were trans they detransitioned that's why it's called detransitioning. But they were at one point trans, yes. They're still so trans this is not, something. So it's not something that you were born as then? Yes. They just chose to revert. What, what does it matter? They were born trans. They, they have experiences. Something in their life has changed. We do not understand the complexities of the brain. We do not know what makes consciousness. There's a very good reason to believe that they change, right? Like people change all the time. They change their mind. So the people, the people that do it and then realize that it was a mistake from their own estimation... Maybe they were not presented with enough, uh, you know, uh, guidance. Maybe they were pressured into the opposite direction, just like you're saying. Maybe they were pressured into the opposite direction by those. Maybe they saw that it was too hard to be accepted and there was no acceptance. And right. like we said with uh, so, the suicide rate. Sometimes you pressure them into not transitioning and sometimes you can pressure them into transitioning. When they Disagree. Shouldn't. No, you're giving them the option to transition. But obviously, most of the time, detransitioners are very, very vocal that they're detransitioners and like to tell us that they're detransitioners uh, and make a big, there's not a lot of, uh, it is, it's a pretty, like it's even, like I said, a more of a rarity because I feel that I'm not trans, so I can't know, right? I, I can't know. I have no trans feelings. I don't want to speak for trans people, right? Um, is more so that they they do this thing and then they are essentially like they can't be accepted. It didn't work out. They can't be accepted. For some reason, they cannot uh, maintain that. I, I do truly believe that they're trans at their heart or they're maybe non-binary, probably gender fluid more than anything. Right. And so and that's th this a, is fascinating because you're essentially you're you're willing to accept them if they transition or if they are trans, but you're yep. not willing to accept them at their word when they tell you. I oh, no, I am. I'm still non-binary. No, I just think uh, it's purely a, like words, right? Maybe they describe themselves as trans, and that's fine. I, I accept that they're trans because non-binary no, people are I know, still but you're, trans. You're really, you're really dismissing what the what the detransitioners say about their experience. You're saying yes, well, because individual I, I believe that they were because trans. I, I don't whether I whether they say that they in fact were not. Yeah, because anecdotal it doesn't mean anything to me. I don't care about their stories.
I don't care about any of that. That doesn't yeah, matter. I look the at the data. With, this is the problem with collective assessment of, of you know, what's well, how lives. science is done. If, if I just went off my personal experience, what other people told me, I think earth is flat. <laughs> I would think the earth is flat if I just went outside and looked and I'd be like, oh shit, it's flat. Right? I like I have to take collective data, scientific consensus. Okay. But you have, I mean, there are people, it's not a single yep. person. So of course not. You're right. There's like uh, out of, I think the, I'm guessing we're in the hundreds of thousands of people who have transitioned, who are open and about about it. Now there's what, like, I can name one D transitioner, that person that was on like Matt Walsh's documentary, I think, but I can name probably 20 trans people at the top of my head. Oh, this, this just goes to show the, the media bubbles that we get into. Cause I've seen dozens, but regardless, it, I mean, it, it just, it, it takes on a very callous sound when you say, I don't care about their anecdote, their, their single story. These, yep. oh, that's weird. Cause then I can say the same thing. I don't care about that, that one person who, uh, you know, feels as if they're oppressed because they, they weren't given, uh, it know, doesn't matter your when they were taxed, the reality doesn't care about that feeling, right? The reality is trans people are, there's hate speech against trans people, that nightclub shooting happened, that trans people are oppressed in some form or manner online. They receive some of the most death threats currently that I've read a study not too long ago. Undoubtedly. Receiving, right. So that is a form of systemic issues, like, or at least, you know, societal issue of trans it's societal, acceptance. not systemic. I mean, yeah, well, okay. Societal, right. But it can lead to systemic issues because society dictates the systems. Right. So my, my point is though, that trans people are facing something from a data perspective, right? So I don't give a shit about trans people's stories. I don't give a shit about the transition. I don't give a shit about straight people's story. But if I look at the data and I want to erase that discrepancy, I have to start somewhere, right? So I can start by accepting trans people to erase that discrepancy and hate, <laughs> right? I could just start there. I, I don't, I can start by going into schools and telling kids that it's okay to be trans. I don't need to tell them how to fuck or do anything. That's fucking weird. You know what I need to do though? Is be like, hey, if you don't feel weird, you shouldn't kill yourself. You should know that it's okay to be trans. It's okay to be gay. You can do these things, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the main thing that's going on. And most of this legislation, almost everything that's an attack on trans people is conflating this with the idea of sex is the same as gender, but they're not. Or it's sexual acts is not the same either, right? Like being trans is not inherently sexual. Like you don't be trans, become trans by fucking. You become trans by being born trans, by just changing your perception and reality, how you interface with society, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, because yeah, I mean, we're not trans. Ago, you said that they're not born trans. I mean, no, they it, are like, born if, trans. But then, if they say that they're not, though, you say that they are. No, because this transition. Okay, so when I say trans, I include non-binary people. That should be a, a clear distinction here. Uh, a trans person uh, can be somebody who's non-binary. That means they could have transitioned. You know, assigned male at birth. Uh, they could decide that they, you know, for a portion of their life, they are now presenting as female or they are female. And then they decide to detransition. Well, they're gender fluid. They are non-binary. They have lived both experiences, right? That is a non-binary person, but they still have transitioned. They are still trans. But, but some of these people say that, the, that they're not non-binary. Okay, they but why should were, their word be misled. louder than the majority, right? Why do I care? Because about it's their word? individual experience. It's what they, it's what if we truth, cared about individual experiences, right? Nazis would be running the world. Like, I don't give a shit about Nazis' experiences. I don't give a fuck. Like, fuck a Nazi. Have, how how does an individual's experience... Because a, a Nazi could tell you that, like, black people harass them or, you know, Jewish people harass them. And I have to care about their experience and, like, take that at face value and, and weigh that with anything? No, of course not. I don't have to weigh that for you're, shit. You're categorizing detransitioners as the same as Nazis. No, I'm using an, 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 an analogous situation, right? Of somebody 
who has a personal experience of being harassed by something, which doesn't matter, right? It could be you. Okay, correction. You, your personal experience. If you were harassed by, I don't know, there's a there's a Mexican guy that harasses you when you walk out of your house. Another white person. I don't care. Whatever it is, you're going to take it as like, and you tell me that your personal experience, oh, Mexicans harass me. Should I punish all Mexicans for that? Should I not accept Mexican people? Should I... Like, but this why is not, I this is not, this is not about whether or not they should be accepted. It's about re recognizing that there are some people that are saying that they're being sucked up into this vortex okay. of what, what they feel is being propagandized into a lifestyle that, well, that great, that this yeah. is the first time you've said that you've said you don't care about their experience whatsoever or their story. And I don't understand that. That well, I just don't think I, I care. Oh, I care okay. deeply about the trans people that, that are. Well, I care about all people, right? So I'm 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 a humanist, well, right? I every every time you talk about this, you say you don't care about anecdotes, you don't I, care about individual because stories. That, because I don't care about that towards the big picture, right? Like towards the the how I change policy, the, right? Like the I can care about this. The big picture comes human. from individual stories, man. I mean, it's still no, it doesn't it, though. Yes, it does. What individuals yes, does. do nothing. If I if I went off individual experience, literally nothing it, in the world would get is, done. We build all, cities it is all together. Of our, it is all of our individual experiences that lead to our decision making that then affects the collective. So you can't discount the individual experience just to because the collective and and your, you know, your eagle eye view of societal yeah. uh, societal movements is like now omnipotent to the. You but know, data the is of opinion data, from the individual. Data lifts itself above the individual experience. That's what I'm telling you, like the science, right? Why, why, if I go off my personal experience, I would lead a very, you know, bad life, right? Every little thing would change, right? But if I, we live in the modern world, I can Google it, right? I can look it up. I can do whatever. I can go to the Stanford website and look up a study they did for the last 20 years about something, right? I don't think that all cats are going to give me rabies, right? Or anything. Statistically, that's really low. Why do I think that? Because of science, right? And data. So I don't care about the individual experience. When I say I don't care, obviously I care about that person as a human. Like I would never want to hurt them or, or have them, whatever. I'm just writing off their experience as having statistical weight, right? Well, I, I think that if if you're going to write it off entirely when there are more than one, I mean, there of course. are, <laughs> then, then you are essentially willing to break some eggs to make an omelet. And, and I think of course. That, that these people's lives matter and they're telling us that, this education system that mm -hmm. they that they've gone through and the peer pressure that they experienced led them down a path that in some ways destroyed their lives i have a question and i think and i think that you should reassess your your prior okay assessment of were you born of attracted this is good were you born attracted to women i believe so how did okay so you were born attracted to women i mean i wasn't attracted to women when i was a kid like four or five years old but uh but you knew yeah. right you just ended up that way right mm -hmm. yeah you were groomed into that. Do you see that? Okay. You were no, groomed into that. Okay, no. because you, you, the same logic applies in the reverse, right? These people just being told you can be straight doesn't make you straight. You were just know, knew that, you were straight. <laughs> that's that's your your assertion is that that's all that's happening, and they're saying that's not that that's not all that's happening. They're not just being told that being trans is okay. But why? Their their personal stories don't mean anything. The data doesn't show that. There's no widespread like that. You can look at statistics. You can see school curriculum. Well, you can this go is a relatively new phenomenon. I think you will see statistics in the in the not too distant future that you have a far higher percentage of people that transition that regret what they've done, and and once that happens, will will you reassess? 
Of course not, because it's still the majority, right? Unless the majority changes, then I, of course, I will reassess. If the majority of people who transition, that's, see, that's bizarre. Go, that's bizarre because, like, I value the majority. Black, black over people the are the minority in this country, and you've you're right. You've gone. I, to I value them their, repeatedly. They so. have their own. They have their own thing. And I look to stand arm in arm with them. That's the difference, right? I look to erase any inequality to stand next to them, and I will fight against that inequality. Mm -hmm. Call it out. I will call out systemic racism. I will yeah, call but, out systemic but why, inequality. Why does the, the minority of the trans community that realizes later on that it was a mistake, why, why will you not stand arm in arm with them? Because the minority of that doesn't reflect the whole of the population. We're talking about big groups of people here. Group theory, right? Like the idea of groups. And like, just because there's like a, a few, like, uh, you know, uh, like I'll use like, I'm trying to think of like an extreme example, like Zionists, right? Like there's a Zionist people. That doesn't mean that like I'm going to, uh, stand by they still also by the way detransitioners still face transphobia right i know I but you, you keep you keep uh, you know using a, a, an analogy of these like really reprehensible groups as opposed to these people that okay had they using... had they stay transitioned you would be their ally but because they've not now okay. you're like i'm not the question standing is why did they detransition was it societal financial or family pressure right that's and the main they, thing and, and and you're discounting what they have to say you're saying I, that it's, and I'm saying we it, should they weren't accepted, so they chose not to. Because I'm not a reactionary. To what they're saying, I'm not a reactionary. I don't react. I, I wait until I know the data and what says. Why are these people the most common thing? Is pro like I don't know. There is no study, but I'm going to guess that the study would be uh, societal pressure, right? Detransitioners in the United States, uh, twenty-eight thousand people surveyed, found that eight percent of the people who detransitioned reported some kind of uh, or my bad of the nearly twenty-eight thousand people that were surveyed. 8% of respondents were detransitioners. 62% of those, of the 8%, uh, said they only did so temporarily due to this, uh, either societal, financial, or family pressure. Right. So it was not because they were not trans. It's because they quite literally couldn't maintain it because they couldn't yeah. get a job because there was, you know, they couldn't, being right. trans is hard but you're, to You're still accepted. talking about hundreds of people that said otherwise. But you, again, you're saying the 62% matter, the 38% don't. Yes. And I'm saying the 100%. whole of their opinions matter. See, well, that's I'm, weird. But why? They're not. I don't want to bet because them killed they're, because their experience. They're not going to be killed. What changes? They, all they do because, is get because the system that you're advocating for fucked those people's lives up, and you're discounting okay. it because they're not in the majority. Okay, but but think about it this way: they had the option. All I'm saying is you have the option. In what way are you harmed? Let's say I, I think it's way easier when thinking about like this is like a hyper specific thing to expand it to something bigger to explain like a really simple concept. In what way does you having your basic needs met hurt anyone else? Right. Yeah. If you were to understand that, if you had housing, if you had food, housing and health care, right. If you just had your basic needs, you were OK. You could just sit at home all day. It doesn't matter. Well, How would that hurt anyone unless else? There's, unless there's some sort of food shortage, then in which case someone else. OK, but starve, let's imagine but, there's yeah. not. Right. I'm okay. Just well, then, yeah, it doesn't hurt somebody else. Yeah. OK. So just by I'm saying being exposed to trans, you know, uh, ideas, trans books. I know. I know. But it, it, we're, we're going in circles. You're saying exposed to. A lot mm -hmm. of people are saying that's not exactly what's happening. And these, are, right. these are detransitioners. And we, that are we should get rid of this stuff. That's not what's happening. Okay. We, we should get rid of anything that is that is a forced thing. Or co uh, but we can't get rid of all coercion and capitalism. But we can at least try to uh, think. I mean, but no one public is... schools. So, like, mm -hmm. it, it, uh, so you're arguing that it's coercive in public schools. I, I agree with you, but I just, I'm surprised to hear you say it. I just think that it's a minority of it. And of course, I look to eliminate that. But I'm just saying on the, we should tackle the big issue first, which is making trans people not feel threatened. Why do I care about yeah, the, the I agree with that. They should you, Okay. Be it's like the trolley problem, right? Would you rather save one person or five people? Like I'm gonna save the sixty-two percent. They're ha yeah. having a battle right now, right? They're, yeah, they're well, having I, a battle. I think I think that 
I would rather try and save both the 62 and the 38. And, and I, I'm I think telling that you, okay, if you can't. obviously you can't save everybody, but yeah. there's still, I think that if you were to do this in a, in a way that isn't um, systemic, because okay. that's that essentially you have, you know, department of education and then you have curriculum that's, that's rolled out on high um, yep. and you have, you know, basically the vast majority of teachers go to liberal arts colleges and they have uh, very similar ideology uh, ideologies and worldviews. But um, why do you, I, okay. So why do you think that is colleges? I, I mean, I have, I went to college for six years, you know, I'm, I'm going to get probably my doctorate. I'm just wondering, why do you think they have that idea? Why do you think they share a commonality of like critical theory as you call it, but that's not really critical taught, theory. It's taught in college. It's not. I'm telling you as somebody who's been to a lot of colleges, spoke a lot, read a lot of things. There's, I've never, the only time I've ever seen critical theory was in a law class. And it wasn't even a class I took, I was sitting in on. There's no critical theory taught. And in education, because I have an English degree, you have to take a bunch of education courses. There, you know what they teach you? They teach you um, a, a, a method of, of uh, it's called a static method of writing and understanding, especially for education. It's called static method research in which that's how they come to this conclusion. And you know what, the, most of the time, that means they have to remove themselves from their individual experience to find out what is gonna help the most people, right? Well, and that's the idea. I, I disagree with you entirely that it's not being taught in colleges, but if you're going to say that, I'll just take it on face value, then yeah, why- okay. there's why no these, way to prove it, right? Yeah, why do these teachers come out and have such similar ideologies then? Because collective consciousness, we share a shared experience, material conditions. The basis of socialism we have material conditions that shape our existence we all have the same fighting capitalism under a sim or all very similar experiences well that that doesn't make any sense because i went to college i came out and i didn't feel similarly right. to how you the majority do, come so. out like i do right we have shared similar experience right so i mean that's called like we understand class consciousness but that's what marx wrote about the understanding that that if we all go through this uh, we have at least some understanding. We're all workers. We're all for the man. We all understand. We don't need to know the theory of capitalism that we live in it. We we. So we you think that you think it. that the reason this ideology is is so profligate is because the natural of progression shared experience under capitalism. Yes, a hundred percent intersectionality. Interesting. Of, of course, because it's a we we like the only way to think about it logically is these things progress has happened naturally throughout history. Why do we abolish slavery? Right, that was really fucking profitable. Why do we get rid of that? because of class consciousness, right? Like slavery was free labor essentially for the people who brought them here and fucking took away their lives, abhorrent. But eventually the average man was like, why? I'm, wait, I'm getting paid and this dude's not? And the average white dude is like, fuck, like we gotta tell our president, you know, Abraham Lincoln, we gotta get rid of this. It was started before that, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, shared experience is a very, that's how progress happens. Like that is a yeah, class well, consciousness. I mean, uh you're going to argue it's progress. I'm not so sure. And I think oh, that that's, that's the, okay. that's the debate here is, oh, is whether or not it is progress to be teaching children from how do trans I, people hurt you. You. I never said they did. Oh, okay. Give me one second. Actually, I, have a phone I, I think that, that my essential thing is I look at saving the majority, right? If 62% of people who transition are very happy with their life and it improved their life, reduce the risk of suicide because they were born trans, then uh, I'm going to look to favor them. Like I'm going to look to save as many people as I can. Right. And, and I would argue that it's also causing damage. Not to me. Of course. Uh, of me, course. Collateral but, damage. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and I think what, that that instead of just assuming that because your path and your estimation as it stands today is mm -hmm. going to save more than it harms, that that's a, a pathway that we should stay on. I'm saying I hope that you'll reflect on 
perhaps there are some changes to this path mm -hmm. that could also benefit those 38%, which you are discounting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, not discounting them as people, but I am 100% going to always favor the majority of people, right? I'm, I'm going to try to save as many lives as I can because I understand that, like, listen, I, even if it's like pushing on them, I guess to an extent, right? If, if be trans, whatever, if that is saving, do you, do you the understand majority. the danger of always favoring the majority? Um, yeah, of course there, there can be dangers, but I think the dangers are inherent to people anyways. And the majority of people will always form groups. Like it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because you, as part of that group can try and course, but the correct. group can set up fail safes and uh, to prevent that. Right. Like we can protect liberties. Yeah. Like the constitution and the bill of rights. It's worked out great. Look, I, yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you always acquiesce to the majority and what the majority is saying, you are essentially giving up your own autonomy and your capacity for critical thought. And it, it's fascinating because I don't think you're, I mean, you're clearly a critical thinker, so I don't understand why you're so convinced that you should always acquiesce to the majority. It doesn't make because sense. Because I don't me. think I'm special and I would rather have shared guilt or whatever you want to say, shared guilt, right? Shared experience than I would over me inflicting anything on anyone else that isn't that I'm dumb. I'm not special. And unless you think you're special, I don't think I held any merit above anyone else. I think that all humans are created equal. And I think that we all deserve the same amount of say and power in the world. Yeah, I don't agree with either of those statements. But what makes you special? Uh, You're unique. My merit. Yeah, huh? what, what, my merit, what, I, what I'm capable of. Do you not think other people have merit? Of course. Okay, so you're not special. That's just something no, you think. No, there's, there's different levels of merit. I mean, you, so think, you think that you have you more merit. You really, you really believe that everyone's born equal? Yes, 100%. We That's all have value to the world. So Albert Einstein and Donald Trump, equal. Of, uh, to some extent, yes. <laughs> of yeah, course, to some why not? Extent, exactly, because they're not. They're not equal. No, that one is different. They're different, unique. They are equal, though. A hundred percent. They well, both have who, value who was, to the who human is society. Who is better for for the world? Who is I mean, better for the world? It's subjective. Well, I think that it's it's. I think Donald Trump enlightened ultimately. the social movement uh, in people, right? Uh, in the opposite, in a in the uh, opposition of fascism, that is deeply valuable as a dog shit person, just like most terrible people do where albert einstein right, well, added to you're gonna take socialist it, theory so so hitler hitler is the same then because you know we we learned that anti-semitism is bad <laughs> so he's he's you know the same merit as you and i that I just, I just don't I, yeah not merit no 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 i'm just saying that we couldn't have known right we have no idea that he would do that i'm just saying that people inherently have value as humans of course. You can do something. No one knows you're going to be Albert Einstein. That's the point. We're born equal. The idea is we don't die equal. We don't become equal. We are born equal. Hmm. And you should have every chance in life to maintain or at least or at least put that equality to like a, a, a bare level, right? Like, but you, you, know, you do believe in genetics, I assume. Genetics? Yeah, of course. A little bit. Okay. I think genetics so, is a very so, minor part. It just mainly I mean, shapes how you look. We're, I mean, we're not born equal in intelligence or size or skin color or eye color or okay. a litany of other things. Uh, yep. Emotional disposition. I mean, there's lots, lots of things that, that we are born with that make sure. us different from one another. So uh, mm -hmm. it's the But we the live assertion. in the modern world. So that doesn't matter. Size doesn't matter. None of that shit matters anymore. None of it. Well, civilization can come crashing down and it can matter tremendously. Um, but you're yeah. right. I guess we, I mean, uh, intelligence matters more than size at this point, but in, even intelligence, that's also I, not something that is equitably distributed. What is intelligence? Oh, if you're going to go down this path, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's I, my if point, I, if right? I say, if I say IQ, you'll say it's subjective or you say that it's a scientific. It doesn't matter, right? Because right. 
there's emotional intelligence, charismatic, right? You can be very, you can be a really good leader. You can be dumb as shit at math, but be a phenomenal leader, right? right. Or whatever Trump. you could be. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't think he's a phenomenal leader at all, but well, he's got a lot of people that follow him. He's so very that's... charismatic. I whole hundred percent. He's a, he's a fucking charisma King. He is the Rizzler. That man can speak. I don't disagree. He is content, right? Yeah. I think he's a dog shit leader, but he's he's charismatic. No Same doubt. with Hitler. Very charismatic yeah. guy. He's a terrible human being, but very of charismatic. Course. But anyways, my point being is that you know there there is a difference from our our born state. That I just think that our clearly we have we don't have equity at birth and we don't have equity at death. Why shouldn't we try to strive for equity at birth in the in the sense of like our material conditions? I don't mean genetic equality. I mean conditional equality, right? Our material conditions well, or striving, for most striving. Of our, striving towards it is isn't necessarily bad if it's done on a voluntary individualist basis when it when it comes down to the collective then you end up getting into some really win. dangerous territory no you understand the greedy win that's exactly what's happening now the greedy will win that is why we have crony capitalists that's why we have oligarchs that's why we have monopolies right the idea is if it's voluntary well it's only voluntary until it's not that, I mean, until that's the guy with the, the ussr ended too man i mean this is kind of USSR human nature no, the USSR, I mean, the USSR ended because of multiple CIA insurgencies with the funding of Yeltsin, with the funding of Gorbachev. Okay. Well, then you can you argue know. that that the the foundational principles by which the U.S. was functioning made it more dominant. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I, I of agree course, with yeah, you yeah. that uh, certainly it was undermined by the CIA and militarism and everything else. But um, I don't even know where I was going with that. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is an interesting conversation. I, I think the, the most, the biggest point I'm getting to is that like... Uh, I don't think it like why why those thirty whatever percent of people that detransition out of the eight percent already right or or I mean the thirty percent so out of twenty eight thousand eight percent detransition and sixty two percent of those people that detransition said that it was purely because they could not financially so less than that so like we're down at like a tiny tiny percent of trans people right. are doing they just detransition because it wasn't for them okay well, I would so rather, far yes okay. But I'm, I'm saying that I would rather, and, and there's, unless you, uh, I guess, uh, don't believe in like uh, happiness of people or whatever, like the morale, the bigger picture is like these people, these, this little tiny group of people, um, I think that they should be able to go through that experience. Yeah. If you don't want to and do transition, that's fine. There's no harm, but that doesn't mean we stop teaching about trans See, th people. This is, this is the issue too, though, is that you're, you have you've kind of discounted the 38% of the 8%, which is a small amount. I'll grant you that mm -hmm. it's a hundred people or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also have the, the impact that happens. Like I have a bunch of girlfriends that are mm -hmm. younger just because of like the community that I'm in, not younger, okay. like younger, younger, but like in their twenties. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and they said, <clears throat> they said that their experience in high school was one of tremendous peer pressure to mm -hmm. be non-binary and okay. to, um, you know, not necessarily transition or, or even classify mm -hmm. themselves as trans, but just like this, this progressive sexual acceptance movement. Okay. Um, I think that's good. Not being non-binary would be fucking awesome. I wish I was told I could do that. You know, maybe I wouldn't have such like weird ideas of masculinity or well, being a man. But see, this is my point is that they, these people are, are statistically unrecognized because they're, they're not, you know, there's no permanent damage done to them physically or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But, but many of them say that the, that what they went through put them into depression, gave them anxiety. Okay. Like they, and I'm sure that there's people that have killed themselves because of, you know, not fitting in, but that happens with all teenagers. So like, this is a, a bigger issue, yeah. obviously. Um, but my point is, is that I think that the problem from this path that we're on mm -hmm. is, is further reaching than you're giving it credit 
and and whether it actually gets to a point of a majority of children saying to themselves, I don't like how I was educated as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I still think that there's good reason for us to reflect on those that are saying this was terrible. This is not, this is not helpful. And like, okay. if whether or not we'll ever get to a majority that actually say that out loud, I have no idea. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that there's a, a real danger with staying on this path and ignoring the pleas of parents and ignoring the pleas of children who experienced it and didn't like it, mm -hmm. that you will end up having a, a real knee-jerk reaction in the opposite direction that okay. will actually be systemic in nature and will actually be governmental in nature, which is, I think, what we're starting to see now and it's very early innings of it. So my, my argument to you would be that we are actually going to end up getting less of what you believe you're you're striving towards. And and I think that if you ignore these people's concerns, you're going to end up in a very ugly place. And I would caution you against it. But they said the same thing about accepting like black people. Like I just don't think so. I think it's just purely given the idea that it's okay. But to it's be a trans. little bit different because you're not telling a white kid that, you know, <laughs> that he has to be black. You're saying, no, but I'm telling a little boy that he doesn't have to be a little boy. And that's okay. Why does it matter? Because sex is not gender, right? I should not because, have to because act for away. some some of those children, it causes unnecessary confusion, and that causes them problems. How how is it confusing to know that you can have a choice? Because they've never considered it before. And well, here's it, what them, here's what here's what male is like, or not male. Let's just let's just here's what men and women are like, right? Male is your sex, and female. I think they should be more separated. We should do more. We're striving. I hopefully make more. Male, female, that's your sex. That's for your doctor. Doesn't matter. But how you interface with other people, that can be, you know, man, woman, you know, non-binary. Doesn't matter, right? You should just have the ability to be like, man, you want to wear dresses? You want to play with Barbie dolls? Who cares? Like, I, who cares? Who cares, right? Like, I think you should have that option. That's the whole point. The whole point is that there is not a single bit of trans legislation or, or positive trans legislation that is forcing anything. It is all purely like having books that say it's okay to be trans or display trans characters. There's nothing being like, you have to be trans. Yeah, well, right? unfortunately, there are some parents that that share your worldview that are in large part forcing it on their kids. I mean, you have people that say at two and three years old that they started to transition their child because they just knew. But and there's no like, evidence of that. That's what I'm saying. There's no well, there's evidence. There's video of it, man. I know yeah, you're, you're going to say that it's statistically irrelevant. I'm just saying it does happen. And that's concerning. You know, you, you're, you're basically people get struck by lightning. children's lives. I should never go outside again. That's concerning. Right. right? I, I mean, you're going to, you're going to downplay it to that extent. That's fine, but I'm not going to. I mean, statistically, you're more likely to get struck by lightning than be trans. So I, I, that's I like, that's true. Really? You, that's true. Yeah, it's tiny. It's a tiny being trans until very recently because well, being struck by lightning is very tiny too. I'm just I'm just it's, surprised well, to hear that I, that's more common. Yeah, I, the the point I, the point I'm making is that there is uh there's evidence actually of the opposite that parents are are the being the main factor and the reason for mental unwellness at home because they are told by news legislators whatever it doesn't matter that trans kids are actually doing the opposite of what you're saying. There's kids who are trans who are afraid to tell their parents. Yeah, no, because, I know that's a problem too. So would you rather be like, once again, the majority is people like that that are afraid to go home and talk to their parents about being trans because of the way that things are. Would you rather have that, that are afraid to be accepted? Like that? No, I'd rather have neither. I mean, but you can't, the, the, the world is not like that though. We understand it's either you accept them or you don't, right? Well, accept, accepting them is my own individual choice. 
educating them in a uniform fashion in a public school system is a big it's a big decision and i feel like you're you're making it very lightly uh, i would rather these these choices be made by the individual mm -hmm. parents now does that mean that it's going to be perfect also no you're going to have parents why that would i trust up. the individual and when they don't have the access to education why would i why would i trust the bureaucracy of a public education system over the individual why because why is that better because it's there's majority bigger. of there's way more people deciding something way more yep. room for oversight yeah, well, I, I don't agree that having a larger group of people that make a decision makes it better than than my individual choice. If you were to and, go to 100 and I don't and I don't believe that you believe that either. I do because that. at at some point the majority believed that slavery was acceptable. You don't believe you're, that. You're right, and they should make reparations for that. I believe that. Okay. Yeah, you well, learn from it. We share that. We should all collectively, as society, pay for that because that even was though, a wrong. Even though when you if you were alive during that period, you would have been against it. You you owe reparations. What do you today? If I was if I was alive in that generation and I was against it, I should still owe reparations. Right. Yes. A hundred percent. That's the price of society. No, it's the price of participating. It is you're unfortunately you are born into this world. That is the price of admission. It's nonsensical that you own any culpability for for a, a grave injustice that you opposed in real time, but because of a democratic then system I should have that you have seen authority towards. Yes, you should have died. Correct. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, and that would have been more honorable. Did. So, so that's the point I'm making though, right? Is, is I still, if I didn't die and I didn't fight against it, well, then obviously I got to pay the price of admission for society. And that's what I'm saying right now, right? Why, why don't we just okay, accept so, trans people? So I, I owe reparations because I'm not going over to Ghana and freeing someone from some warlord. I mean, like it, it's nonsensical Wait, what that do you mean? I have, why, why do I owe, I owe responsibility to an institution of slavery in America because of nationalistic principles, but I don't owe reparations to someone, some victim in some faraway land. You should, you should, we should pay for them too. We should be rebuild well, Afghanistan that, and Iraq. I mean, this is, this is getting to be. But why? Wait, that you're that's, literally. That's crazy. You're, you're putting the responsibility for every evil that happens on the planet on your back. Yeah. Of even course. though you had no culpability in it. No, because listen, it doesn't matter if I have culpability, right? Because I'm, I'm, does guilty, by, I'm guilty by letting it happen. That's nonsense. You can't, no. you can't, you can't fix it. Complacency everything. is, is guilt. I mean, complacency is, is action, right? If I hold a gun to the back of someone's head and I'm like, Hey, all you have to do or someone else that's in the room, I mean, I'm like, this Hey, is a, if, this is a if you tell me not to shoot argument. them, if you tell me not to shoot them, I won't shoot them. And they don't say shit. And I fucking blow their brains out. They're culpable. I told them, all you have to tell me is I won't shoot. I won't shoot if you tell me. And I that's, fucking blow their brains out. I'm, I'm cold. They're cold. It's not, it's not at all the same thing. You have to actually go overseas and, you know, fight Vladimir Putin in Ukraine or something. I mean, it's like, this is, you, this, you're right. To, you're right. You know, no, I agree. We agree with that you've been removed from the situation. You're, 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 ex, you should not be forced to like go and fight. I get that a hundred percent. We're on the same page there. I, I get that. 100%. Okay. But that doesn't mean that the price of society, roads, things like that, that I use, Unfortunately, I'm American. I was born to it. Maybe not unfortunate. I love America. I think it has the best chance to be better. I'm, I'm very patriotic. That's why I'm so passionate about improving it. Is uh, That doesn't mean that I shouldn't pay a little bit uh, for the, the sins of my fathers. Of course, I, I should try well, to make if, it better. If you're, if you're interested in actually uh, helping America, I would encourage you to, to stop believing that the majority has some sort of moral authority or that you have culpability for decisions that you but oppose in real time. No, because you know why? Because I understand that uh, it's my job to educate. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to fix it. And if I fail, then I fail. That's okay. But at least I tried, right? I don't have to fight with a gun. I don't have to do anything, but I can speak out actively against it. Right. And of if, course. and if, and if it never comes and I I'm a podcaster, pay... that's all I do is speak yeah. out against it. I, yeah, I totally course. understand that. But, but my, my argument is that ceding moral authority to the majority is not a pathway to a better world.
but it's the only pathway because you will otherwise always lead to being oppressed. The most, the worst oppression always comes out of the opposite. I totally you disagree. Them. You're, you're, you're giving the, the whole reason that minority has authority is because of people like you that believe that they do or that they should No, because you can, they have no, they have no legitimate authority over us. They have this is, the this capacity is I, for extreme violence. So we honor their, their bullshit throne. What if it's not real? What if I'm telling you there was a system, like there is a system that has been thought up, tried, attempted, currently being experimented with in the world that looks to eliminate that possibility? I, I, I know, I know of the system, man. I know. No, no, I'm telling you, like right now, there is in the world, not one that doesn't. That China is actively doing that. Yeah. Right. You're talking that, about socialism, correct? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just yeah. Socialism is the system, mainly communism, but socialism is a transitionary state. Yeah. Socialism is the system so which China, looks to eliminate. China, you that. think is is a, a preferable model? to capitalism i, I assume uh, yeah 100 percent. okay i well, think it's on its way to be i should say i should say i think it's on the way to be there's a lot of uh problems of course with china especially with social movements and and things like that i 100 agree but the framework that they've laid out and the ideas and principles that they are on i have uh, you know high hopes we have a 220 year head start on them right they, they'll catch up they are caught up they'll probably overtake us you know well they might and, but they, they I, I mean a, a state-based economy i don't think in the long term could outcompete a, a truly capitalist model unfortunately america is no longer that so you're that's probably okay i don't right think i don't think profit prevail. matters though I, I think profit is dumb like profit well, profit profit shit. matters tremendously if you want to to actually look after the poor no it doesn't it doesn't mean anything profit is uh, profit is something that is used to you have to have wealth to, to be able to consume correct of course of course but only so much as until the state doesn't exist anymore right well, you can I stop love, having a profit state, incentive. I would love for the state to exist, but historically, that's, a, that's it's that's what China's looking for. Have you ever read Deng Xiaoping? Deng Xiaoping goes, "The capitalists will sell you the rope, and you will hang them with it." Carter, you can't possibly be so naive as to think that Xi Jinping, not Xi Jinping, I, Deng yeah, Xiaoping. Exactly. Who's who's in charge? Oh, oh, you're saying now? Okay, okay. Yeah, so go ahead. So uh, yeah, you I think read, that you think that China is going to go stateless at some point in the in the not too distant future? I think they're no, no, no. I think they're more likely. That's it. Okay, well, I'll give you that more likely, but it ain't gonna happen because no, people that are in power and presiding over 1.42 billion people at the at that time uh, that have that kind of capacity for for violence and control and you know obfuscation of wealth, or excuse me, confiscation of wealth. Uh, I just I just don't. But confiscation see any of wealth chance. is good. They they made that money on the backs of other people. Fuck them. Fuck billionaires. Right? Like they're. I mean, the, rid the of vast them. majority of billionaires are are within the state apparatus in China which you advocate on behalf of. So I don't know what the, you're talking about. The billionaires in China, vast majority are, are they're not. They're private enterprises. Yes, they are. Fled China. Just the, majority, the same way Elon Musk is a fucking state operator too. Almost all okay, of his wealth I, is I mean, I guess I, I, I don't disagree, but when they step out of line or go anything against the workers or seen anything as unfavorable, get what happens to them. We don't know because they disappear. They fucking David well, you, Blaine. You you think that that's because they're going against what the workers want? I would argue it's because they go against what the state wants. But, but the state in China is much more tied to the workers than it is here. They have way further representation. They have like thousands of parliament members, like or whatever it's called there, the house members, yeah, thousands. I mean, thousands, but they also have four or five times the population size. It's like yeah, that, that's but it's still they have more equal representation than we do. They have way more representation than we do. They, they also have representatives. Have I mean, do you feel that the 435 Congress people represent you? Oh, fuck no. Okay. Well, yeah, a, a fuck no. But then the having thing a is, couple thousand doesn't represent but, you but, either. Yes, it does. And more chance, <laughs> likelihood. More likelihood, right? <laughs> 435, fuck no. A couple thousand, be a maybe. I, come better. On. I mean, no, no, no. Not maybe. Not maybe. Better. Right? All right. Well, I don't agree.
Because if it's two to one, then that's better than two. All right. Well, two what if the what if the two thousand what if the two thousand representatives in China want to you know enslave the Uyghurs or something, and that's mm -hmm. that's better than here? But the two no 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 of course not the states do crimes all the time I'm just saying they're making okay. active things they have to go against it their, their my, system... my point is my point is the size of the representatives does not assure you any sort of improvement whatsoever it can go the opposite direction just as easily okay yeah I, I mean I just I think that we have a misunderstanding of how Chinese democracy works because their their democracy is much more direct than ours their representatives face no benefits right they are not no, their workers I, I don't think we have a misunderstanding about that at all my argument is that having a, a more representative democracy does not assure a better outcome well you have okay it, it, but it can yes it can because well, think it, about it this it way can there's no but it does not assure it that's the whole argument you're, yes, you're saying nothing that in life is assured well uh, i mean even even if you just look historically there's there's not because there's more representation doesn't mean that you're going to be more free or more prosperous okay. you're that's right that's my argument okay but but obviously i'm going to take the one that has the higher chance for the likelihood of being a better world right once again i would never walk outside with a metal bat in a lightning storm because i might get struck by lightning don't want to do that right, right. Like, so that's the same analogy right the idea yes. is why why wouldn't i bet on the better option or go for the bet progress right that's my point is like i'm gonna always progress and i think people want that right and, and back the root of this conversation is like once again i think that the the movement for trans rights the movement for all this is just a natural progress i think 10 years ago people were like what the fuck is a trans person but nowadays you're seeing it because people have been educated. We have, you know, uh, the vast majority of people have the ability to to go online and look at it. The internet is amazing, right? Both me and you make our money on the internet, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that what has happened is purely a, a result of class consciousness. It is a, a collective good to recognize trans people. Will there be missteps? Of course, nothing is perfect, but I will always value. I, I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one more thought to chew okay. on before we get out of here. Cause yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 what's that? Yeah, it's, it is. it's late for you. Yeah, I gotta catch a very early flight tomorrow. So, Sorry. um, let me, no, it's fine. I, I let me just make one, one final note. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my opinion is that mm -hmm. much of the what you, you view as, um, you know, progressivism is mm -hmm. in fact a CIA operation that began okay. after Occupy Wall Street, um, used primarily to divide us amongst ourselves and to okay. ignore the the evil that comes from what i believe is uh crony capitalism which is clearly what we're functioning under in my estimation you could say that's just capitalism but mm -hmm. setting that aside um right after the occupy wall street movement the the concepts of intersectionality became extremely popular and then under the guise of esg environmental social and governance you saw mm -hmm. corporations then take on the same mantra that we are no longer your enemies we are no longer these dangerous okay. greedy capitalists in fact we are going to solve all the evils of the world and i would argue that they have essentially none of your shared values and that they will not take you in a hundred percent i agree in a direction that you expect to end up and i would caution you in believing that that because these corporations are espousing the same things that you might that they are your allies or nope. that necessarily that confirms that your ideology is proper and, nope, and i, I feel I like because because we exist in a in a, a very social media induced uh, psychosis, as far as my estimation goes, um, the these ideas have become extraordinarily popular in a very short okay. amount of time, and I believe that the knee jerk reaction on the inverse, when you start to see the fallout from things like lockdowns, for instance, okay. um, is going to be very violent and dangerous, and and I don't think it's going to get us closer to the world that you want to see. So that's it. I'll 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 end there. But go ahead no, no, and no, give me good. your closing comments. 
Um, I think all co corporations are evil. They all result on exploitation. I think that the appealing to the rainbow or whatever is all just lib shit, just purely trying to sell more shit. I agree. I would argue, though, that your entire premise of CIA co-opted after Occupy is not CIA co-opted. It is a natural evolution of progress and the fact that people's livelihoods and things, and we looked for a place to join arm in arm, and we realized that a lot of our comrades, our brothers, our sisters, our trans friends were being oppressed. When we looked to link arms, when we looked to have a, a working class consciousness, we had a moment of class of, of realization. And I think the same thing happened in COVID and is why we're seeing rapid unionization across the United States. We were seeing more workers' rights advocation than ever before because people got two weeks of letting the collar off where we were like, hey, shit, like we can just like, we, we don't have to do shit. We can stay home, right? We like, got we a, can lot, spend, a lot more than two weeks of that, but yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like two weeks we were paid for and we had to stay home. Right, two weeks you had to stay home, and I think people instantly recognize: fuck the corporations, fuck all that shit. I just want to spend more time with my family and enjoy my life. Right, I want to have a good life. I want to enjoy my life, yeah. and I think well, that was I another. Think that, that was a consequence that was positive. Well, great. And yeah. you know what else it did? It gave us time to recognize that trans people were under attack. It, it gave us this idea of of oh shit, like man, there's I have all these people that I know in my life that are trans that have not told me because they were scared. Or I didn't know what a trans person was. Like, I, I didn't do, know that do you think that Do you think that they are more under attack during that period than they were prior? Because I would argue not. Uh, during during COVID, do I think they were more under attack? I, I, I what, I'm, what I'm saying is that oh, I sorry. think that you may have realized it during that period, but I think that in, in reality, the experience of a trans person long before the social media era was mm -hmm. much more challenging than it is today. Do you think, do you think not? Um, no, I, I think it's, uh, I think, man, it, it depends, right? It's real. That's a really hard question. That's a good question too. Um, here's how I see it is, uh, I think that their experience was definitely harder in their everyday life because no one knew what, what the fuck they were doing right. or like what the fuck was going on. But today I think that they, on the opposite, like, like you said, it can happen, right? I think if a trans person comes out, they can get harassed by Matt Walsh on Twitter, right? <laughs> you know, that's okay. what I mean. They they yeah. could right so it, it's a double edged coin maybe uh, they have so more they also have a little a bit of good net. a little bit of bad I guess yeah I, I think it's just different battles right that's yeah. it I'm just saying okay. that all COVID did was allow us to recognize that we needed to seek solidarity with as many people as we can right and th that's what I mean it's like that that collar loosening up allowed us to seek solidarity because I'm well, I'm for the collective and you're obviously not so yeah no I'm not yeah. for the collective at all and uh, I. I'm very concerned about the trajectory of things, and I and I I, I do personally believe that it was clearly co-opted. Uh, you know whether or not the movement had any viability or or value to it. Obviously, you believe so. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that it's been co-opted in a way that's that's now dividing us amongst ourselves when we ought to be focusing on the people that are actually in positions of power as opposed to people that are uh, perceived positions of power based off of their sex yep. or their race or the, all these other things that um, you know people can't change and that's not their fault. So. Uh, that's, that's my perspective, but yeah, of course. Uh, I, I think, I think actually it's surprising that we, we definitely agree that there's co-op happening, but the overall good is still good. And we can fucking, with, no one should side with corporations that the big enemy is capitalism, <laughs> right? Like, fuck. Like <laughs> no, we, I'm not saying that, but I am yeah, saying I'm, you are, you are the, the big problem is, uh, you know, rainbow bombs being dropped on Yemen, well, right? That, like, that's a huge problem. Of course. Yes. Yeah. So, well, anyways, I think that's it, about it, as close to agreement as we're going to get. So let's end yeah. there. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. Hey, maybe we'll talk again sometime. Yeah, sounds good, yeah, Carter. Have Thanks a good so. one. Bye-bye. Welcome, everybody, to another... No, no, we're not live. No, we're recording. Welcome to a recorded edition of Liberty Lockdown. This is Clint Russell, your humble host, and today we have Josh Firm of LotusEaters.com. Thank you so much for joining me, Josh. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
Yeah, for my for my audiences who who is unfamiliar with you, if you could give them a little background, I'd appreciate it. Sure. So I've been at LotusEaters.com, which was set up by Carl Benjamin of previously Sargon of a Card Sargon on YouTube. Card, yes. Um, so I've been here from pretty much the start of the company, and my background is I've got a, a master's degree in psychological research. So I'm the, the resident psychologist here, although I'm going to be talking a lot about history and politics today, which I'm, I love I'm perfectly happy to do. I love it. Well, uh, in pre-show, we were talking about how apparently the uh, International Criminal Court, I believe it is, the ICC just announced uh, a, a warrant for Putin, <laughs> which uh, I don't know if he will be acknowledging that, given that he is in I an active not, war. No. And he has and he has uh, 5,000 nuclear warheads, but a, a, an interesting gesture nonetheless. Uh, I, we, we actually had intended to talk a little bit about the history of Russia and Ukraine, but mm -hmm. before we do that, and I'll let you elaborate there, uh, what do you think of, of that declaration that, that he's a war criminal? Well, I think it's obvious virtue signaling, really, isn't it? They've got no way of capturing him and actually doing anything about it. It's just more propaganda from right. the West, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, stunning. Well, speaking of propaganda, let's uh, let's demolish some of it and talk about the history of Russia and Ukraine because it, it is a a, a very mm -hmm. fruitful one and one that the American people are completely ignorant to. So go <laughs> go for it. Yeah. So. My main reason for bringing this up is that there are lots of aspects of Putin's thinking that um, rely on the history and the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And ultimately, the, the question we want to answer is, is Russia going to use nuclear weapons? And my position is it's very unlikely. I'm not going to say no categorically because, you know, anything can happen. But I, I think that there are lots and lots of reasons why it wouldn't be the case. Um, but first of all, I think we need to understand the mind of Putin because he's the key person to understand, the, the key thing to understand in the situation because ultimately it would be up to him. He's the one who calls the shots. So you need to know how his uh, worldview works and where it comes from. And he quite often cites um, the historic relationship of the Slavic peoples and Russia and Ukraine, and I've I've done quite a few videos looking at this actually before the conflict kicked off. Mm -hmm. So I, I would like to think I know bits and pieces, but I'm also no historian, but I've tried to keep it quite general, so I don't think I'm going to get very much wrong here. So it all starts off with the Swedish Vikings settling parts of Eastern Europe, modern day, say Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, those sorts of areas. Um, one of these groups of Vikings were the Rus people who elected the ruler um, Rorik to form the Kingdom of Novgorod in 862. So we're going back quite a ways here and eventually... Rorik the Rus. I love it. it sounds so yes. uh, movie-like. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the film The Northman? It, it, it reminds yeah, me of that. Um, for sure. Um, and then his successor, Oleg, conquered Kiev, which existed at that time. Um, which is, of course, the, the modern-day capital of Ukraine, um, which at the time was a vassal state of the Khazars, which was a semi-nomadic Turkic people. So they were sort of akin to, you know, the Mongols. They were a similar sort of thing. Um, so they continued to conquer Slavic tribes and drove out the Khazars from the area and got some successes. And by the 10th and 11th century, there was such a kingdom known as the Kievan Rus. And, of course, you can see things starting to form here. Obviously, you've got Kiev, which is the, the, the Ukrainian part, and Rus, which, of course, is the origin of Russia. Um, mm -hmm. 
which at the time was one of the wealthiest states um, in Europe. And this is quite important because there's a central theme throughout Russian history of when a lot of these countries are unified, they're able to expel um, foreign intervention. And I think that this is something that plays um, quite a lot in Putin's strategic thinking, um, this knowledge of hi this history of Russia. Um, however, by the 12th century, um, there was constant infighting in the Kievan Rus. There are lots of people vying for power, as um, often happens when you get a large wealthy empire. People want more and more of a peace until it disintegrates. Um, so eventually, the remnants of the Kievan Rus, who splintered into individual states, fell to the Mongols, who, of course, were known for being pretty brutal, um, sacking cities, taking wealth, using horse arches, that sort of thing. And, um, and repopulating the earth, yes. Yes. Isn't it something ridiculous, like one, is it one fiftieth or something like that, of all people on earth are related to, to that, Genghis Khan? That's what I've heard. I have no idea if it's true, but uh, man, <laughs> I can that, believe it. that dude was a savage. <laughs> but um, this would later become the Golden Horde, which becomes later, but this was in 1237 to 1240. Um, and they went on to sack Kiev, which of course was very important as the main city in the Kievan Rus. And um, eventually there would be a new kingdom that would kind of fulfill this void known as the Grand Duchy of Moscow. And of course, Moscow today, very important, it is where the Russian government is based in modernity so things go back quite far and i think if if you live in america you you presume because quite a, a young country relative to europe that these sorts of conflicts are rooted in perhaps the post-war consensus that sort of thing right. but these things go really far back in europe and uh that there are many bitter grudges like you can look at things like the, the greeks and the turks for example where they've got a history that goes back to 500 bc or so um so in the 14th and 15th century they conquered more and more of their neighbors and eventually um, the duchy of moscow drove off the golden horde again this is a case of a united russia drives away the foreign invader mm. this is a recurring theme that seems to be in um, russian history so by this point, it is fair to refer to them as Russia because it's, it resembles Russia as we know it today. And they continued to expand all the way up until the 20th century. And then, of course, 1917, you have both the February and November revolutions, um, which replaced the autocratic czarist system, first with a, a democratic um, system, but then eventually the Bolsheviks took over, of course, communists. And uh, that led to the... Soviet Union. So after the death of Lenin, Stalin rises to power and starts collective farming. This um, leads Moscow to come into conflict with Ukraine um, because it was regarded as the breadbasket of Europe at the time. It produced a lot of the food. So by collectivizing agriculture, by making it no longer for profit, they wouldn't profit from growing most of the food. So understandably, they are against it. And because of the political opposition, Stalin, um, this is my interpretation of history, it's a, a bit debated, but I think Stalin deliberately um, took food away, requisitioned it from Ukrainians, which resulted in um, between 7 and 10 million Ukrainians starving to death. And I think that this is a key point in history where um, the Ukrainian people and the Russian people had a split beforehand. Their, their interests, they, they were separate kingdoms at some points, 
but their interests were usually aligned in expelling these Mongol or um, Turkic invaders. But from this point, there's a very clear split between the two. Can, can I ask a quick question? The, uh, sure. Because, uh, I mean, I've I've read about and heard about the the story of the kulaks as they call them and mm -hmm. those are the the people in Ukraine that were were starved to death uh and they were farmers mo most of them but why why is it that this is controversial like why why is it that we can't get clarity as to why that transpired do you know well um the the debate seemingly is whether it's incompetence or malice and I, uh, I think knowing what what Stalin was like, it's pretty easy to say that it was malice. Um, right. <laughs> he he was responsible for killing so many people. I, I feel like it's a very difficult argument to make that, oh, it's just an accident. No, they, right. they, they knew what they were doing. They tried collectivization out in, in little pilot studies out in Russia. And then even despite lower yields, they carried on with it anyway um, mm. for political reasons. Well, I, I just wanted to you know, for the for the four communists that listen to my show, I wanted to give them a, a fair hearing as to what the counter argument was. So thank you. Of course, that's all right. So um, obviously, when uh, the National Socialists invaded Ukraine, some Ukrainians sided with them against um, the USSR. You can imagine after they'd ten years prior tried to starve you all to death, you're not going to be too willing to fight for them. So you can kind of understand, although I. <laughs> It's a very difficult one um, to weigh in morally because they're caught between two very evil regimes, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, so after the death of Stalin, Ukraine was instructed to administer some of the lands that um, had been Russian since the 1730s. Um, so these were lands on their eastern borders and the Crimea. And this was more just... A restructuring of the country because Stalin had been very central. They wanted to move away from this Stalinist approach. So they'd been given these lands to administer them, things like the Crimea, which had belonged to Russia for many years before then. And um, eventually, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, um, Ukraine understandably didn't really want to be associated with um, the Soviet Union or Russia in general, they wanted to become their own independent country and, and who can blame them really, given their, their treatment. And um, the, the thing is that they took these territories that they were administering with them. And I think that this is a point of contention that quite often gets missed is that, that Russia has a, a relatively strong claim on some of the lands. And I don't think what they're doing is necessarily morally right. I don't think people deserve to die over yeah. states warring over land that's not just in my opinion and i think ultimately it's the ordinary people that are suffering over a war between two governments that seemingly are, are corrupt and are willing to do brutal things in the name of accumulating more power for themselves but um right. as as is nearly always the case yes yes definitely so also in 1991 this is a, another key um year um western instruction basically was to the post-soviet russia um, how they could rebuild their economy because after it collapsed obviously it was not good um, people were struggling to get food bread lines that sort of thing and we told them to sell off many of their state industries which went then to oligarchs and then um, of course there was a, a renaissance of organized crime and long bread lines for ordinary people after they'd followed our instructions and i don't think that this is the best introduction for a newly um 
um, non-Soviet Russia to Western ideas because then um, they associate, well, these Westerners have made our, our country worse than it was to begin with. Well, why would they do that? And there are many um, institutions in, in the West that had an incentive to keep an enemy of Russia in that um, there are many sort of alphabet agencies um, and political foreign policies, particularly from NATO, for example, that treated Russia with suspicion and kept them at a distance. And I think that this was ultimately a mistake because you don't um, get someone on side by keeping them at a distance. You want to, to integrate yeah. them in and make sure that they have incentives to not re return to the kind of rule that they had previously that made them an enemy. Um, yeah. Well, and and, I think and that, that that might be the gravest mistake in all of human history, depending on how this plays out. So, <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not quite as cynical as all that, but uh, I think well, it's I, a pretty I'm just great saying it's possible. <laughs> it is certainly possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in my view, this needlessly created an adversary of Russia where it needn't be one. And um, I think NATO has a role in that certainly as well. And then the final point of the history is in 2014, um, then President Viktor Yanukovych was deposed from his presidency. And this is in the 2014 Euromaidan um, protests for aligning with Russia over the rest of Europe by pro um, EU activists ultimately. And I think this was the signal to um, Vladimir Putin, um, to Russia that um, Ukraine has fallen out of its sphere of influence and it could potentially be an EU-aligned, NATO-aligned country right on their doorstep that is hostile to their country. And I think by this point, um, Russians had more or less accepted that the, the West was still antagonistic to them, even though they were no longer the Soviet Union, in that we this, this kind of blundered 1991 reformation of their system and the fact that we still had NATO in the first place it should have you know the day it collapsed it it should have been abolished as far as I'm concerned I completely agree well you haven't said a word I disagree with Josh it's terrible <laughs> what are you doing but all of this I think goes in to inform Putin's mindset in that he quite frequently evokes this sort of national sentiment he is certainly a nationalist I think that's fair to say Undoubtedly. um um, he makes repeated references to the unity of the Russian people, not necessarily in a, a racial sense. Um, there are many different ethnic groups in Russia, and um, although they, they don't always get along, it, it tends not to be um, quite as tense as other countries. I'm, I'm not going to name any names. Um, <laughs> but he highlights three distinct groups when he's talking about Russian history. Um, the Russians, the Belarusians, and the Ukrainians as being central to this Russian identity, this this pan-Slavic view of the world. And of course, if um, we, we look back at the history side of things, then it makes sense why he wants to be as united as possible, because rather than it being um, the, the Khanate or the Mongols anymore, it's the United States that is the, the, the foreign antagonist. Right. And his view is that, well, if we are to maintain our borders and remain a, a country, um, then we have to be as strong as possible to repel foreign invasion. And I think that this is what um, informs his view. I, I don't necessarily agree with the, the sort of imperial ambitions of it, um, but it, it seems to follow on from that view of history. 
Um, yeah. Even though I don't think it's necessarily a immoral position, and you you can make the case that there are there is this cultural sphere of influence in that you can look at data of the percentage of the populations in each country, how much um, of them are Orthodox Christian. So in Russia, it's about seventy three percent. Um, are Orthodox Christian. In Ukraine, it's 57%, and in Belarus, it's 48%, which um, kind of juxtaposes them with the rest of Europe, who are either Protestant or Catholic. So it's a very clear division from the sort of more Russian sphere of influence to the rest of Europe, who Interesting. are viewed as their own sort of entity. And in many of his speeches, he makes lots of references to the Kievan Bruce, um, because He's a nationalist. You want to invoke your your national sentiment, your history, if you are a nationalist, because you want to show that your ideas are rooted in your history, and you don't want to be seen as, say, a, a revolutionary or going against what it means to be Russian. So that's at least my understanding of his mindset. Right. Um, so, One question: uh, Do you course. think that he has imperial interests beyond unifying the the Rus? Well. I think that there's there's a case to be made for many Eastern European countries, and, and many of them are understandably quite concerned. And you, you can see this, for example, with a country like Poland, who um, are very involved in helping Ukraine. I think they've taken something like 2.5 million Ukrainian refugees. And Poland isn't exactly the wealthiest country in Europe. They certainly don't do badly. But right. um, we get many Polish um, immigrants to Britain to get better paying wages. And um, of course, we are historic allies, Britain and uh, Poland, because we joined World War II to, to defend them. So I think there's a, a long history there. So um, no, no negative things to say about that. But um, <laughs> what I am arguing here really is that um, intrinsic to Putin's ideology is the, the idea that um, these lands in, in Ukraine um, are part of Russia, more or less, or at least part of the Russian identity. So it's intrinsic to his ideology. It's not necessarily a reaction to the West that he's just, you know, seen weakness and then been an opportunist to seize land. There's a lot more depth to it than that. And although you could argue that um, the West, in their treatment of Russia, have set up a situation whereby um, he can do this, um, I think the Western reaction was far stronger than he expected and it's gone on far longer than he would have thought and when it, it the, the conflict first started I'll, I'll be humble and admit that i thought it'd be over relatively quickly and it certainly hasn't been um but um i suppose it, it's fair to to cover what we can actually blame the west for before getting into the, the nuclear weapons question because i think that um this also informs the nature in which um putin um would approach Western intervention and potential nuclear war. So um, obviously we've covered NATO already, um, but there have been lots of other things that have um, antagonized, in Putin's view, um, the integrity of the Russian state. So in February 2019, um, the Ukrainian constitution was amended to establish a course of Ukraine as a member of the European Union and of NATO. So if you have that in your constitution, it couldn't be more clear that they want to be in the Western sphere of influence. They don't want anything to do with Russia anymore. And, by um, by a, a course, I assume you mean a pathway to, to yes. joining? Yes. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. But um, 
because they still aren't a member of the EU or of NATO yet, as Correct. far as I understand. Yeah, they're um, a de facto member. That's <laughs> what it looks like. Well, it, it's seemingly gone that way. Apparently, you don't actually have to be a member of NATO for them to come to your aid, which is strange. But um, yeah. also in 2020, this is one that um, kind of fell by the wayside. Lithuania, Poland and Ukraine created something known as the Lublin Triangle Initiative, which wanted to recreate the um, cooperation between the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was a, a, a state that existed before, which was actually a historic enemy of Russia. There, there were conflicts with them. So it's just another signal that they are moving towards this, this Western thing. And I think here that there was kind of a misjudgment of um, the, the delicate balance of power, um, both by the Ukrainians and the West, in that um, they thought they could get away with bringing them into this sphere of influence rather than keeping them neutral, which they had maintained a far better job of um, pre-2014, in my opinion. Um, but yes, um, I suppose we may as well get onto the, the nuclear question. That's what we're here for, after all. So, Well, um, well before, before we do that, um, I mean, what, what do you make of the concocted narrative that that russia had chosen donald trump to be america's president now, would that <laughs> would that not constitute a uh some sort of you know incentive for putin to realize okay they're they're gearing their people up to come for me i better do whatever moves i have right now well i i think that although there may be some propagandistic influence in in foreign elections i i don't think they're say um hacking ballot boxes and, and changing the results in the, the no. way that the Democrats alleged, because uh, that would probably leave a trace as far as I understand it. I'm certainly no um, software engineer or anything, so maybe yes. I'm wrong. No, but... no, you're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> it would leave a trace. <laughs> but and, also, and, and it didn't happen also. so The risk versus reward is not really worth it. If, if a foreign nation is caught hacking into someone else's elections, well, that might lead them to be a pariah in the international community and could lead to trade sanctions i mean not a problem for russia anymore obviously because we've already got them on them but yeah. in for a state that didn't have sanctions to then lose access to global trade would simply be far far worse than the benefit of altering someone else's elections yeah well i mean unless Unless uh, I'll, I'll make the the devil's advocate argument, unless Hillary Clinton intends to have World War Three with your nation, in which case risking manipulating the election does make sense. It, regardless, it didn't happen. So I I just my my point in in saying this though is that it seems to me that if I'm Vladimir Putin and I'm witnessing the American people be propagandized into believing that I would, you know, have the gall to manipulate their election and choose their president. Well, clearly they are they are preparing or they they are seeding the ground for uh, at least one half of the American population. In this instance, it ended up being the Democrats to be on a bloodthirsty war footing that I think carries forward to this day when it comes to the war or the support for the Ukrainians against Russia. Anyways, just my mm -hmm. read of things. No, I think that's that's perfectly reasonable. And in fact, following on from that, I think. Um, I, I don't mean to compliment Vladimir Putin. I don't agree with his politics, his his view of morality, his his foreign policy. But he is quite astute at criticising um, Western countries, basically going for the jugular. And either he's got very astute advisors who he has the good sense to listen to, or he comes up with this himself. Yes. But 
he he quite often tries to make the distinction between the political parties in America in that um, he will say, well, the, the Democrats are doing this, the Republicans are doing this. He at least tries to um, inject nuance. And quite often I've seen him say, give speeches at the United Nations. And he quite often talks about the hypocrisy of US foreign policy. And I, I hear what he says and I'm just like, wow, yeah, I actually agree with a lot of this that, you know, that trying to expect values of other people that are not being embodied in the United States itself. It's it's very frustrating to someone like me because it, you know he's taking my talking points and then when people hear me talk they say you've been propagandized by Putin and I'm like no 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 I propagandized Putin he's saying what I already have been saying <laughs> but yeah <laughs> so um I've been talking for quite a while now so tell me why you think that um that there is a possibility of nuclear war or why we should be concerned about it if sure. that, that is what you think. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think that your the case you're making is that you know why would they nuke what they consider to be their Slavic brothers? And and I think that the truth is like, well, I mean, tell me if that's not part part of the case that you're making. Well, it it might be an element of it in that I, I think a lot of the reasons I've got here for them not doing it are more pragmatic than ideological necessarily. Sure, um, but there is an element of that in that. Um, since the conflict began, there's there is lots of anti-Ukrainian sentiment in Russia. But if they did that, I think there would be a lot of backlash, just purely on the humanitarian point. Undoubtedly, you know, because yeah. um, a lot of Russians have family in Ukraine and vice versa. And I think that um, there's also the, the fact that it's right on their doorstep as well, and the the, the physical danger aspect of it. Just oh, in that, for sure. Yeah, no, it wouldn't be prudent and it wouldn't be something that you would do uh, unless you truly felt, you know, it was your your last option. And this is this is my concern. OK, so um, I agree with everything you've said about their history. I agree that dropping a nuke on, on your doorstep is not fucking smart at all. Like it would actually be really stupid. But here's the, the dynamic that we put them in is that you're now in a position that if you lose Crimea, if you lose your warm water military or your naval port, you're basically fucked. Like you can't defend yourself against whatever the U.S. empire wants to do to you. So I think that they have already in their minds, they have put a red line on, on Crimea that says we will we will literally do whatever it takes to maintain this mm -hmm. port. Absolutely. And, and um, that. There was actually the Crimean War between the British Empire and Russia. Um, I think this was, well, when was it? I think it was 1856, something like that. I, I studied this in school, so I should know. It's a bit embarrassing <laughs> that I've forgotten. But um, it was around that sort of period of time. And it was for the same exact reason, that they wanted a warm water port. And I mean, it's not changed. It's, I think right. the technology has gotten a little bit better to the point where they they can traverse the ice on their northern edges a bit more but it's still not ideal and having access to the black sea from a strategic point of view is very advantageous uh, undoubtedly and and who who would blame them it'd be like if uh you know texas wanted to secede and the north was like no <laughs> oh that happened oops um all right so yeah i i think that there's there's some similarities here and and you know my my concern is that because there is a all hands on deck, you know, full full NATO support for this 
this nation, which, by the way, I, I am of the opinion that the Ukrainian government is comparably, uh, you know, corrupt to the Absolutely. Russian government. Uh, so, if anything, um, pre twenty fourteen, many um, outlets that oh, were yeah. cheering on um, U Ukrainians fighting the Russians would have been criticizing them for being corrupt in that they, their levels of corruption obviously it's very difficult to estimate because it's corruption it goes on underground <laughs> right um but the the estimates were quite often higher than russia itself exactly i mean it's it's essentially like a kleptocracy and and i uh you know i i don't care i'm just being totally honest i could care less if it's Zelensky or putin that rolls that that rules over ukraine i don't think it's to the net benefit of the people there i think that you know to the Ukrainian nationalists, Zelensky has more appeal to the to the you know people that view themselves as being more Russian. The eastern side of Ukraine, they they view Putin as being uh, you know more fair and, and more closely in alignment with their belief system. And I'm of the opinion that that, that nation should be divided uh, ultimately to to reflect the population's will. Um, but that's not to say that I, I support it being done through you know bombs and violence i think that it should have happened through uh whatever it's called the uh the vote like, yeah, well yeah secession but i mean there, there was votes I, i'm forgetting the term mm -hmm. um but there was votes from the the eastern side that after the years of shelling that they were like yeah we don't want to be here like <laughs> just just end it put a make us russian and let's be done with this shit and and it just didn't happen because there's a, a tremendous amount of uh, Western influence and CIA and and you know Victoria Newland State Department influence that has been incentivizing Zelensky to be as antagonistic as possible with Russia, um, and I think that they have done so with the promise that if you do this, if you're our little puppet, that we'll we'll make you a NATO member and then you'll be you know your little king of your castle. But the the risk is so extraordinarily, you know, just stupid and dangerous to take that like russia has dr drawn a red line and not like a bullshit you know obama in syria red line with you know gas but like a real fucking red line and you're not going to take crimea back so what is the plan here you know if you're if your intention is to continue to escalate this thing and say say that you know they actually arm the Ukrainians, which I don't think this is happening, but say say I'm wrong. Say my read of, of the battlefield right now is totally off base. And in fact, the Ukrainians are, are on the verge of not just defending themselves, but actually pushing back and then taking all the way to, to Crimea. Well, then what do we expect to happen? I mean, I'll, I'll put it to you. Do you really think that Russia will accept that fate? Because I do not. No, I don't think so. And unless there's some sort of internal political pressure to stop them doing so, right. I, I don't think that it will happen. And I, I'm not entirely sure how there could be an end to this conflict because um, I've, I've not really seen any attempt to resolve it on the Ukrainian side, certainly. Um, maybe if they ca recaptured all of their territory, then the shoe will be on the other foot and it'll be the Russians refusing to negotiate rather than the other way around as it as it was a couple of months prior yeah well it seems to me that there has been um i mean at least the 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 reports were that there was a a uh, a template for peace that was laid out in february or march of of last year so basically a year ago like right after the invasion and and uh it was allegedly undermined by uh, the UK's former prime minister and and I don't know have you is that 
news that exists in your area or is that bullshit yeah um i i think it it would have probably been boris johnson wasn't it um yes he, he's been i think he's trying to basically position himself to get some sort of job i can't remember whether it was either the, the un or the eu or something like that i think it would have probably been the un um to do with resolving conflicts or something like that so i think it might have just been political maneuvering on his part but it sounds about right to me yeah well i mean that that's what the alleged reports were that you know they had uh basically what i just described which was like they get the east they get the donbas and crimea and they're like and we're good that's what we want you guys get the west and that's just the the formal divide we we can have peace if we all agree to that and it was undermined by Boris Johnson at the direction of, as usual, CIA, State Department, Victoria Nuland, Biden administration. And, um, you know, my my read of things is that their intention is to, you know, make this, you know, Afghanistan, I guess, 3.0, since it is now destroyed uh, <laughs> three empires, the USSR, the USA, <laughs> and now they wanted to destroy the Russian empire, too. I mean, it's just crazy. But I, I mean, in this case, it would actually not be Afghanistan. God bless them. They've had plenty of fighting. Uh, that they wanted to make it the Ukraine is is this this bleed that just slowly cripples them. But the the crazy part is that the reality is that you're you're also bleeding the treasury of America to to a significant extent. We're we're now facing you know bank collapses and you know record high inflation for my lifetime. Um, there is also now peace treaties that are being negotiated between the Saudis and the Iranians from the Chinese as the as the broker there. Now you have China that's attempting to broker a peace treaty between the Ukrainians and the Russians. And and my read of all this is that you're witnessing a a death of fiat currency and, and a realignment as they try and seek to be the new reserve currency of the world or at least create a bipolar world order where the US dollar uh, becomes less hegemonically dominant and then you have a rise of kind of the Russia China the brick block and mm -hmm. and you know when you're when you're talking high level finance and high level geopolitics and you know new world order or whatever they call it they call it the liberal world order <laughs> like oh yeah i i hear you motherfuckers i know what you're saying uh, <laughs> uh, it it seems to me that there's just there's very high level gamesmanship that's being played and to to doubt or to just write off the potential for a nuclear conflict, uh, given the stakes here, I think is dangerous. Okay, so I think there are a few things. I mean, I agree with the vast majority of what you said there. I think that um, the threat of China is um, quite a ways off, though, um, in terms of um, I did a lot of digging into their sort of internal economics and they basically need to it's restructure trouble. their entire yeah. economic system to maintain a stable country, um, right. which isn't a small feat. Um, but I, I think that they're, they're doing that sort of wily e. coyote thing where they've, they've run off of a cliff and they're still running and they haven't quite dropped yet mm -hmm. because um, they've been using lots of their assets as, as collateral um, for lots of unsustainable loans. I mean, does that sound familiar? Um, but, they've done that to it such does. an extent now <laughs> it sure does they've done that to such an extent that they've really over leveraged themselves and they're going to have to tighten their belt and they're probably going to get caught in something known as the middle income trap whereby um, 
they aren't quite on par with Western countries, but they're sort of in the middle between a, a developing and a developed country. Right. And it seems like there's a perfect storm of um, economic problems internally in China that may mean that it's going to be caught in this. And that's at least my understanding of it. Obviously, it's one of the largest economies in the world. There's a lot of complexity there. And I could be wrong. Maybe they're going to do something about it. But well, no, um, I, I actually agree with your read there. But the, the issue is that, you know, when people say that, usually there's this misconception that the West is doing significantly better. And, and I think that when you take into consideration our debt overhang and the fact that our inflation is running rampant and the fact that we are hiking interest rates and the fact that we have emptied out our ind industry, you know, it's like we have our own version of very similar problems, which as the leader of the free world and the most dominant economy and blah, 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 blah. It's like, yeah, well, we look a hell of a lot like China to me. Um, so I think that's an interesting <laughs> dynamic. I think... Um... We, we are at least in the position of having levels of wealth that aren't widespread in China yet. Sure. So even if we're running at equally stagnant rates, we've <laughs> right. still got that advantage. To our our some baseline extent. is higher, yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, back on to Russia again. Um, I think one thing that's very important to highlight is that Russia has had a formal um, legal no first use policy on nuclear weapons which has existed since the times of the Soviet Union in, in 1982. And um, although, of course, the fact it's enshrined in law doesn't necessarily mean that political leaders follow it. I mean, uh, just look at the US Constitution and uh, the current Biden regime. And um, this quote in particular from Putin from February 2022, I think, epitomizes um, the, the Russian view more generally. And he says, um, Russia remains one of the most powerful nuclear states. Moreover, it has a certain advantage in several cutting edge weapons. In this context, there should be no doubt for anyone that any potential aggressor will face defeat and ominous consequences should it directly attack our country. And he's been very, very clear with the language he used there. Obviously, aggressor um, and directly attack. Um, right. So... I think he's drawn a line to say if we have boots on the ground, foreign boots on Russian soil, that would be cause for nuclear war. So yeah. I, I think that that and that would be catastrophic for everyone involved, right? Um, yeah, so, the whole world, yeah. <laughs> certainly the Northern Hemisphere. I think. Um, well, yeah. Sure. I, I did some um, b before doing this. I did a bit of reading about what would happen if there was a nuclear strike or a nuclear war between the West and Russia. Basically, the entire Northern Hemisphere would be, become unlivable. And then you'd have perhaps South Africa and Argentina and parts of Chile that would be okay, which um, wow. made me think, actually, what, why did all of those Germans after World those War Nazis II flee to, Ar <laughs> flee to Argentina? Interesting. Mere coincidence. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just thought that was a bit, bit of food for thought. But um, yes, I think that, that there has been... Um, this precedent in Russia for a long time. And even though um, the law doesn't necessarily mean anything to someone like Putin, um, he can work around it. Obviously, he's worked around the constitutional um, directives that say you can only serve a set amount of terms. So if he can do that, then this wouldn't be too different. But there's an expectation from the Russian people, this is well known, that this is Russia's position. Um, and you would really be undermining your domestic position um, 
although there would be nothing left of Russia to, to rule, of course, after yeah, the exactly. fact. But even if there was, you, you, you wouldn't be able to stay in power for very long after you did it um, because yeah. of this expectation. Um, and I think that that's a very strong incentive in and of itself. Um, but well, there's also, of course... But mm -hmm. let, let me let me push back a little bit because sure. I think what what you've seen a lot, even from the Western, you know, diplomats, aka propagandist lunatics that go on TV every night, um, you know, they've been they've been talking more and more about the potential for first strike nuclear weapon usage, and and I've heard similar language from uh, I think it was from the Russians. I don't know who in the in his you know cabinet was the one that was talking like this but mm -hmm. do you know what i'm talking about i think it was um medvedev who was a former okay. um former prime minister he was in the, the interim one with Got putin it. who he immediately named putin the prime minister because he couldn't get the presidential term again um, Got it. but yeah he's, okay. he's basically a, a putin acolyte um, yeah but i think there's a very good reason for them doing this um so the mere mention of Russia using nuclear weapons, obviously and understandably, gets talked about a lot in the media, doesn't it? In in the Western yeah. world and by pretty much everyone, because of course, in, in, <laughs> it's a big deal. It is a big deal, of course it is, and um, it also invokes sort of Cold War esque thoughts of you know, particularly in the fifties and sixties when it was a, a very real concern, but it of course didn't materialise, thankfully. Um, but I think. Russia is well aware, and particularly the people in the Russian government, of how it will be received in the West. And it, it quite often uh, spirals out of control in that someone mentions nuclear weapons and then the media says, oh, so-and-so has mentioned nuclear weapons. Here's what would happen if um, to all of these major American cities. Like there's, there's an incentive for journalists to blow it out of proportion because it, it's good for views. The, the idea of nuclear annihilation, unfortunately, is incentivized a bit by the market, which is a shame. Um, yeah. But um, my point here is that this Western reaction helps um, project Russia, Russia's power both in, in the conflict and internationally. If everyone's saying, oh, Russia could destroy our country, well, all of a sudden Russia has an outsized sphere of influence because relative to Russia's economy, it's, um, it, it's, it couldn't possibly compete with um the west i mean you could just take i agree um, one of the states in the united states and it it could out compete the entirety of russia um, right so it's it's one of those things whereby um it's it's making a mountain out of a molehill um and in russian politics and geopolitics and foreign relations they actually know of this it's got a, a formal name known as um, reflexive control and um, the definition of this is that um, it's control someone has over their opponent's decisions by imposing on them assumptions that change the way that they act so right. by mentioning nuclear weapons the assumption is that well they might use them then mm -hmm. but um, we haven't actually seen any evidence that they intend to um, if they were to say use nuclear weapons just in ukraine or against the West, we would expect to see them mobilize them. Um, the US, of course, is watching with satellites, all of this sort of stuff. I know that yeah. um, Elon was using, what um, was it Starlink, something like that, to provide intelligence to the Ukrainians as well. Um, 
So they would know where to watch, what to look for, and it would be pretty obvious if they were preparing for it. But um, their, their nuclear arsenal just hasn't um, been mobilised. It's stayed right. as if they're not in a state of war, which signals to me that they don't have the intentions, despite saying it, um, to use them. And I think that what they're doing here is they're trying to puff out their chest and um, intimidate people into negotiating peace as quickly as possible because um, they want that territory, they want the war to be over at this point because they've done pretty poorly, um, thanks in part to um, the quite valiant fighting of the Ukrainians as well as all of the um, weapons and money that's poured into Ukraine. Some of yeah. it, which I imagine has probably actually helped, but um, <laughs> I imagine a lot of it has gone into people's pockets. Yeah, I was going to say, 10% ten of it wasn't stolen before it got to the <laughs> battlefield. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with basically your whole read there. The, you know, I've never claimed that it's probable. You know, like mm -hmm. nuclear war is never probable. Thank God. If it were, we'd all be dead already. Um, so I, I think that, you know, and what you're describing too is essentially game theory. You know, if you yes, that's right. They're 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 bluffing <laughs> that they're they're going to use nukes. But the the reality is like, if they were to be in the position, which is what I was arguing earlier, is that if they're in the position to actually lose Crimea, say that they they do, you know, put up enough of a defense that they then go on the offensive, the Ukrainians I'm referencing, and they start to push back towards uh, Crimea. Like, I just, I really believe that that is a red line. And I think that that is where you would see the, the, the nuclear arsenal start to, you know, you could show deployment of whatever mm -hmm. launchers and things like that, that would, would signal like, Hey, you know, we've been talking, but we're not talking now, you know, like this is real shit. So you better back off. And, and I think that that I don't want to get to that point because then you have Western leadership, which are so fucking out of their minds that they would still be like, he's bluffing, you know, and like it, you just get this this, uh, you know, basically dick measuring contest between a bunch of power hungry lunatics and you just never know how it plays out. And then you get egos involved and it's like, look, I, as I've said a thousand times, not probable. I don't think that it's likely. If I thought it was likely, I'd already have moved to the global south and be, you know, pinned up with the former Nazis in Ar Argentina or whatever. Um, but, you know, it 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 is a possibility. And the more we play this game, the, you know, even if it's small, that probability increases. So that's mm -hmm. my concern. Yeah, I, and I think that's certainly reasonable as well. I mean, I'm I'm obviously concerned about it, but then I think the the implication of what I'm trying to say here is that should we do anything about it, as in well, if there's a tangible or there's a possible threat, should is there any reason to actually act to to prevent it or be concerned? And I, and my perspective is that it is quite often used as a bluff. It's it's almost like a poker game at an international level in that they're yeah. exaggerating their hand um, to get everyone to fold so they get more chips. It's right. <laughs> I know it's a bit of a, a crass analogy to, to talk about. No, pretty fine. deadly conflict but it it still works on on the same levels and i think yeah. that um it's an the, it's an apt metaphor i mean that's that's mm -hmm. that's what they're doing they're bluffing to get more chips and and but i mean so are the americans you know we're we're bluffing that we have infinite resources and that our domestic economy won't implode if we continue on this stupid path 
Um, and I don't think that's the case or, or that we can print infinitely without suffering, you know, catastrophic consequences. Sometimes I wake up and I decide that they actually think these things are true. <laughs> like, I don't know if our if our political leadership is that unbelievably stupid. Um, but after seeing Janet Yellen speak yesterday, I think they might be. Um, it's very I think if you lie enough times, you start to believe it yourself. Yeah. Um, you get your own Kool-Aid and you end up. Yeah. It's uh, Jim Jones and yourself. It, it's really concerning. Um but yeah, I, 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 so I guess what is your argument here that that we should just continue to to support the Ukrainians and not change our course because they're bluffing? Is that? Well, I mean, I, I do have gripes as you do about sending as much money as we have. I I can certainly understand it more so from Britain's perspective rather than America, in that we do have tangible alliances with. Eastern European countries. I mentioned Poland before. I mean, we've got a historic um, relationship with them and they're concerned about Russia because they were within the Soviet sphere of influence. It could be justified that if they're done with Ukraine, they could move on to other countries. I, I don't necessarily think that going to be in a hurry after the, the amount of attrition going on. Yeah, I don't um, think so either. But um, I think that as part of having political allegiances, you kind of have to scratch a few backs even though I don't necessarily like the notion of putting money into a foreign conflict because there are, there are lots of moral implications there. Like, well, if we're supplying lots of weapons, lots of money, we're potentially extending the length of the conflict and making it more and more deadly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think that uh, on the one hand, you, you kind of want to keep aggressors at bay you want to support the the defenders um but on the other i think that the extent of funding has been ridiculous particularly in a, a time where our economy has been very poor but in in a lot of countries that's obviously down to lockdowns disrupting um Bingo. supply chains and things like that yeah. so it's not exactly come at the best time to to be supporting this sort of thing and i have a lot of moral considerations there that i don't really feel comfortable with generally speaking i, I want solutions to be diplomatic um Me too. and i think um although the the best incentive towards peace is having a good effective military um sometimes the, sometimes I mean, it's also it's, to not to to you know run color revolutions in a bunch of neighboring countries to people with yeah. nuclear weapons for fucking years <laughs> yeah. and years and drive them, drive them out of their minds. Mm. I mean, the, there's, it, this is the problem. Like in my estimation, the, the, the U S and the American military in particular, but also our state department, CIA, they have all lost their moral authority because they have, um, you know, had a bunch of unconstitution un unconstitutional illegal wars throughout my entire life um undeclared wars is now just the fucking norm it, it like that no one cares at all about the constitution in this country anymore and um not to mention the propaganda that, they, that they've utilized to get us into these wars and it's like look i just and and then on top of that there's this entire history of you know what they were what victoria newland was doing in ukraine and all the way back in 2013 and then you have john mccain and lindsey graham on the ground in 2017 18 saying next year's the war or is the year of offense and they're they're already arming the ukrainians to to shell eastern ukraine i mean the history here is very very ugly and america's hands are far from clean i'm not to say that 
Russia is justified, just saying like there is a real rationale for what they're doing. And and my government has way too much involvement for me to feel comfortable in saying, oh, well, yeah, of course we've played a part getting this sick dynamic over there and, and allowing for this war to be a, a, a thing, really. And now we are also going to arm them and allow them to fight to the last Ukrainian. Like that's that's our policy. There is no you know exit strategy that that is uh, there's no road to compromise here. There's no letting them have the east. No, none of that. It's just total conquest, total dominance. I mean, it's all so sick. And and the as far as I can tell, you know, I'm being robbed to see Ukraine more Ukrainians die than have to. And and the outcome mm. of this is all but inevitable, uh, barring that NATO is willing to you know, fight World War III to take back Crimea. And and that's not something I find tenable or appealing whatsoever either. So my my stance is, let's get the fuck out. Just stop. Stop the training. Stop the funding. Like, if you want to have any leverage in this thing, then demand peace negotiations. That should be the end of it. That's the end of, our, of American involvement. We have no more moral authority to be participating. That's my stance. No, I, I very much agree. And um, I think it's the very definition of a proxy war, isn't it? Undoubtedly, it's, yes. <laughs> it's just a means of the United States, Britain, um, many European countries getting back at Russia um, for not coming into the fold, even though, um, as I laid out earlier, um, part of the reason they didn't is because we drove them away. We needed an enemy because the incentive structures within our institutions still relied on there being this external threat that justified their existence. Exactly. Yeah. They And they didn't want to be enemies. <laughs> like they, no. they're, like, they're like hey uh we realize we're weak right now so if you guys could just treat us with a little bit of respect because we still have nuclear weapons we would be appreciative and and america's just like hey take this you bitches and it's like why are you doing this and i mean they still had enormous nuclear arsenals and and the america just chose or the west more broadly chose to to maintain an antagonistic uh you know relationship that it, for the life of me i can't understand unless as you've described there's interests financial interests military industrial complex etc that were like no we must maintain this perennial us versus them so that we can divide the american population and keep them engaged and you know uh, buy into the propaganda uh and now it seems as if you know <laughs> the american people are so so divided on who is our enemy you have the, the Democrats who are convinced that Putin and Russia is our enemy, then you have the Republicans that are completely convinced that China and, uh, you know, Xi are our enemy. And it's like, from my vantage point, you know, neither are a real direct threat to American rule if we were to just behave in a, uh, you know, fiscally sane manner. And we can't do that either. So, I don't know. It portends dark times. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got two things to say here. They're a little bit tangential, but it, I think they're important. And yes, um, it, it starts with um, a man named Vladislav Surkov, who um, was Putin's strategist. And basically he devised a means of getting Putin in power and maintaining power, whereby he um, funded lots of groups, set up groups that were um, all different um, groups across the political spectrum. And, and they were to to campaign as as normal, even though they were paid by Putin money, basically. Uh, and then he let it be known that these groups weren't genuine. So in in the chaos, in in the fact that nobody knew what was authentic and what was genuine political activism, it all seemed fake and 
therefore out of the, the chaos um, someone who takes control um, can amplify their influence and maintain power more easily and i think this blueprint has been used um, by um, westerners themselves having seen <laughs> it work so successfully in russia um, to divide countries to get greater control because there is this this movement to greater and greater authoritarianism as i have seen it i mean there's <laughs> yeah global in nature too yeah i mean we we've got to the point now where even parking on on the side of the road um, which is a normal thing in most of britain could be a finable offense and things like that um but um my, my personal gripes aside the, the point being here that um two really good ways to get people engaged in in what you're doing is through um fear and anger um that because um there's a psychological theory known as prospect theory whereby potential losses are twice as psychologically impactful as uh, equivalent potential gains right and so these negative emotions are actually the best way of mobilizing people and if you um, create this fractured society whereby lots of people have lots of different understandings of what's going on who the enemies are um, you've got kind of the optimal situation to take control to take more power for yourself um and i think mm -hmm. that that is what's going on in that uh, well it's it's as old as uh, julius caesar in that he said uh, um divide et impera divide and conquer mm -hmm. um, it's not necessarily a new concept it's just that the techniques have developed uh, yeah, even well, now, further now they have uh vr and ai and algorithms and social media and uh you know 24 7 news cycles i mean the 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 capacity to manipulate us has escalated escalated tremendously and um i think that's exactly what's happened is that uh, you know the first major rollout of a domestic psychological operation not just against the americans but i think many you know western nations including the uk was the uh the covid lockdown regime Absolutely, and yeah and i think that in my estimation, many of those same tools have been utilized to catalyze the West in its defense of Ukraine against Russia. And I'm very disturbed as to like what the ultimate game plan is here. If that war is in fact not winnable, which I believe it to not be winnable without it escalating to nuclear war, um, then what is the fucking game plan? Like where, where are we going with this? We're just going to let them kill each other for years and years. Uh, like, and have just a quagmire that's horrific. Um, I don't understand. You know, I, I mean, I guess I can understand why the West would want that, but I, for the life of me, I can't understand why the Ukrainians would go along with it uh, unless they're being lied to by their leaders, which I think they are. Um, so what, let's just wrap with this. What, what do you think the outcome is here, man? And, and what, what do you think the, the play is for our advocacy as to how we might get this to be resolved? Um, <laughs> Well, the, the truth is, I don't really know what's going to happen because I, I can't, uh, uh, like you, I can't really see a resolution to to this yeah. conflict anytime soon. Um, it, it might well be one of those things where it just comes out of the blue and and happens. That's what I'd like to think. Um, I sure hope, man. Uh, but I think it's going to have to come to the point where either one of the sides um, has quite a resounding victory and they can negotiate peace terms if the other side is willing which i think is very contingent on the circumstances right um for example i don't think russia would concede if ukraine captured all of their territory back as zelensky has said is his intention um yeah i think that 
perhaps seeding the Crimea, um, maybe even some of the areas of the, the Donbass. Um, I mean, I, I don't know the on the ground situation. I don't even know whether those uh, polls, those democratic polls that tried to find out whether people wanted to align with Russia were, were fixed or not. I mean, I've seen footage of people stuffing ballots in Russia, so I know that this sort of the thing does go on. Well, there, there was actually, and the only reason I believe them, because I agree with you, I would be very skeptical too, uh, but there was actually uh, Western journalists on the ground that did like straw polling, you know, where they, they were to check mm -hmm. basically what, what is the populist sentiment. And then their results were very comparable. You know, it, maybe it wasn't quite so dramatic, but it was still cle a clear majority of people in the east of uh, Ukraine that wanted well, to be part of Russia. So to, to support that view, I think it was Russian up until, um, what was it, 1956. Right. So... It, that's not really too long. You're still going to have the, the, the largely Russian culture and identity. People are going yeah. to regard themselves as Russian. It doesn't just disappear overnight. No. And it's certainly not far-fetched after you've been fucking shelled for a bunch of years from, <laughs> from your own government that you're like, uh, yeah, I'd like to get out mm. of here. <laughs> so, I don't know. But yeah, that's my um, take on it. I, I don't think it's going to be nuclear war because that would be... Um, it, it wouldn't be proportionate to what is to be gained. Um, it, it would be more sensible for Russia just to say, okay, we concede we lost than to, to start launching nuclear weapons. Because even if they use them against Ukraine um, only and not the Western world, which would obviously result in um, well, a nuclear me, holocaust. I, I, never, oh, I, never I never made this point explicit. So here, the, the reason I'm concerned about the potential for it is that I could see... Because right now there's this, you know, mutually assured destruction game theory that says if you launch, we launch, everyone dies. Well, there is now this new strain of thought that's happening both from the West as well as, uh, you know, the Russians to some extent, at least in rhetoric, whether or not it's real, that that we may do an initial strike, like a one-off, low-yield nuclear weapon. And and this is my concern: is that if they are on the cusp of, in fact, losing in Ukraine, that they could say we're going to like the West has been calling Russia's bluff. Well, now Russia is going to call the West bluff and we're going to fire, you know, a, a mid-level nuclear weapon right into the heart of Kiev. And, and that's it. Like, we're not going to fire anything more than that, but we're going to say, look, we, we told you motherfuckers and we ain't playing around like that type of thing. And then, and then all of NATO and the West has to decide like, okay, do we end the world? Like right now, do we end the world? And, this is a this is a game of chicken dynamic of the highest stakes, you know, full existential risk type of thing, um, and I think that's a real concern because the Russians could just say like, "Look, Crimea and our capacity to defend ourselves is dependent on this warm water port. If we don't find a way to maintain that, well, then all is lost anyways. So let's call their bluff. We don't think they'll fire back. I mean, that's the play. That's that's my that's my explanation as to mm -hmm. the dynamic I could see developing." Sure. And I think there is also an element of the, the sheer um, amount of nuclear arsenal required to to win the war in Ukraine for Russia um, would be such that the nuclear fallout would make any winnings completely unusable. So there's right. no incentive to do it in the first place. So I can actually quantify this. So um, the US Army plan to use, I, th I think, 136 nuclear strikes over a, a 60 mile um, front. And the front in Ukraine is about um, almost 400 miles long. So proportionate to that, that's 
a, a ridiculous number of nuclear weapons which are going to have subsequent fallout so you, you're going to be harming yourself far far more um, with the the nuclear fallout making lots and lots of both ukraine and russia unlivable right. than you would gain out of the the territory in a, a peace deal yeah well that, that's why i'm saying you fire one and it's not not mm -hmm. the the big boy but just like hey we're we're demonstrating that we are like the the genie is out of the bottle like we are willing to do we are willing to go to this extent and and if that's the case you know well then i would imagine that the mm -hmm. ukrainians probably if if the west doesn't fire which i for the sake of humanity i hope they don't respond in kind absolutely um, yeah then ukrainians probably sit down at the peace table and say okay <laughs> like what what are we going to do at that point i mean the game theory is totally tilted towards russia at that point so I just don't want to get to that point. I don't want to get to a point where we have a madman who's willing to use nuclear weapons, who can now negotiate whatever he wants and, and demand whatever he wants of any of his neighboring countries. And we've now created this, you know, this uh, dilemma where it's like, okay, well, we've now entered a world where we have the the open first strike use of nuclear weapons. Like, and that, I mean, you just don't live long after that's the mm -hmm. uh, the current paradigm. So. I don't know. That's my concern, man. But I, I you have made me feel better. I think uh, so. <laughs> well, I, I I'm glad it. about that at the very least. <laughs> and, it and might be made... annihilated by nuclear weapons, but at least I made someone feel good today. That's... <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I, I think that you. I mean, you've certainly made the more, uh, you know, rational, cool-headed uh, argument as to to why it'll probably be avoided. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I tend to agree with you. I think it, it's unlikely. It's just, man. I just didn't think that we would be so stupid as to get ourselves in this type of uh, predicament. Mm. And and God willing, we'll find peace here soon. Mm. Um, really appreciate your time. Go ahead and tell my audience where they can follow, support, everything else. Of course. Um, I, I do lots of work at lotuseaters.com. I have my own uh, weekend series called Contemplations. And you can find me on Twitter as well, just at, at Josh Firm, which is uh, spelled exactly the same as it is on screen. So if you want to hear more from me, that's where to find me. So. Um, thank you very much for listening as well. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, thanks for having me as well. Yeah, it was it was great. Uh, and that's F-E-R-M-E, -E, uh, Josh, uh, on Twitter. So uh, if you guys want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. And uh, I want to just give a special shout out to the Mises Caucus and the Take Human Action Tour. Uh, they were the ones that that set up this uh, interview between Josh and I, and it was a great discussion. Thank you very much, yeah. Yeah, and I, I will be in uh washington and colorado over the next two weekends and then i will be in uh tennessee and austin the last two weekends in april and i'll be debating destiny live in nashville <laughs> do not miss it on this very topic the war in ukraine he wants to just Good support luck. them into the end of the earth so it's going to be it's going to be a challenge <laughs> let's be honest <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again, Josh. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?